I'm going to get started. We're live, yeah. Yeah. All right. Good morning, everybody. We're going to get started. Um, uh, we're going to continue our reading of the fourth chapter of Black Reconstruction. The um, um, the general strike, excuse me. And um, but before we do that, um, we're going to have a report on where we are in the. Uh, we're calling it a symposium on Black Reconstruction. So uh, we met on uh, Thursday. We've been meeting a lot these days, but um, I'll ask um, Serafina and Emily if they'll give us an update. The date, the, the agreed upon date, the agreed upon title, and what the, you know, the architecture of the event looks like. So start, go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, in celebration of Du Bois's birthday on February 25th. Oh, okay. We're going to um, have a, I guess it's a symposium mm -hmm. on the. The Boys is Black Reconstruction as we were reading it in through school. And the title that we are working out or have worked out now is The Black Proletariat and the Fourth American Revolution, The Makings of a New People. Um, you're Why don't you just state it again? Let's and see if everybody feels comfortable with that title. Yeah. Just state it again because it is a bit complicated. And you can explain it. You, go want, ahead, sorry. If you want to explain more. Yeah, we'll, we'll just state the title again. Maybe I'll say something about mm -hmm. our, the process we went through to, you know, to come to this. The Black Proletariat and the Fourth American Revolution, mm -hmm. the makings of a new people. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's, a, but, but we'll come back to, well, let's just on the title. How, um, what do you all think of that mm -hmm. title? Yeah, I like it. It feels like it feels forward looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and what you know, our process of arriving at that, because it was Emily, Serfine, and myself mm -hmm. meeting, you know, um, on Sundays. And then on Thursday, Jeremiah and Kathy. Alice, Alice, Alice. Oh, Alice and Alice and, and joined them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what, we're, what we're trying to do, as you say, forward-looking, is to amplify some of the thinking from the 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. But that's what we were trying to achieve, that forward-lookingness. And we'll come back mm -hmm. to that. And that relates to something that Michelle and I were talking about, about sociology. But we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, Take a time today. <laughs> Can I get a pound? Oh. <laughs> 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 no, no. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, good. I'm sorry. I interrupted Seraphina. That's okay. Um, yeah. Um, because I guess we were talking about why. We're celebrating the boys' birthday in this way. And um, <clears throat> uh, I guess overall anchoring the Black Reconstruction 
I and also a phrase a thing that we've been talking about is black reconstruction as a philosophical work, a work of philosophy. But um, we're saying we're yeah we're talking about the recovery of the black reconstruction in a new way, in a new time. Could you just repeat that? The recovery yeah. of black reconstruction in a new way, in a new mm -hmm. time. Very important. I think that'll be the centerpiece of the call to the symposium. Mm -hmm. But ahead, I'm sorry, I interrupted no, you. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. But um there has to be laughter. Because <laughs> only one person left. <laughs> Um, so for the program itself, we're kind of talking about having two panels and uh, a roundtable. And uh, for the first panel, if you don't mind me saying, um, like we we're thinking about talking about the democratic mm -hmm. struggle being the yes. former string, yes. uh, theme, mm -hmm. and then the second panel will be on a new theoretical synthesis. Mm -hmm. um, our roundtable will be dealing with practical questions and the ideological obstacles to a to these practical questions of like um, like what's happening right now, the current um, things. And uh, we're talking about involving different organizations that we've been dealing with, like Platypus, Midwestern Marks, mm -hmm. um, Church, and, of the and Church of the Overcomer. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we were working out the first panel for the democratic struggle, mm -hmm. um, I guess that's more of a fle more fleshed out. But we're talking about like being more exact on what we mean by democracy and what's a new democracy, mm -hmm. um, and defining what is the democratic struggle for this time in America. Um, we're talking about how the capacity of the American people cannot be separated from the democratic struggles. Mm -hmm. including white people mm -hmm. so the question of capacity um and we mm -hmm. can look at we've been studying that with black reconstruction was hey man i thought you were in hawaii you're so funny doc okay but um <laughs> Okay, good. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. Forgive me for interrupting. No, you didn't. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is the thing about capacity. It just made me think about in black reconstruction. Well, why is why it does Du Bois write the text black reconstruction, and what purpose does it serve? Not only like a question of history, but the potential of the revolutionary process being continued um yeah but yeah and we're also going to be debating these questions about what is fascism um you know and the i guess kind of revolutionary politics um our theses of gerald horn and so on so that's what we've been discussing so mm -hmm. far i guess Go ahead. Yeah, I think um, the we talked about the panels having those specific themes because 
in terms of democratic struggle, a big reason why we wanted to focus focus on that is because oftentimes I think today you hear people talking about how we need to build socialism. But I think that's different than what even Du Bois talks about Black Reconstruction, the way Du Bois is laying out, formulating the American revolutionary process in its essence and the form it'll take. Like rather than focusing on, because even Henry Winston talks about the stages of American revolution and all that has been won in 1776, um, the Civil War and Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, and today, like talking about how each stage has had a democratic demand as a part of the ultimate, you know, these democratic struggles all in the name of a new democracy. And so I think the first panel is not just grappling with those questions and us like asserting what we mean by a new democracy, um, especially for now, like Serafina was saying, but I also think it's a, a time for us. I think the big thing that it seems like people get confused by is us asserting that the civil rights movement is a revolution. And even when I was talking on the phone with my dad, because I was feeling anxious about all that we're doing in free school, I think, yeah, I just think even the questions that we're asking with Black Reconstruction and in some ways, like the theorizing we're doing, mm -hmm. it made me really anxious. And I called my dad and my dad was like, my dad was like, you need to, he's like, everything you said sounds right. But what you need to do is you need to define revolution. Like he's like most people when you when most people when you say revolution they mean like like the seizure of state power. And he's like the overturning of the state. Yes, the overturning of the state or like yeah. So I feel like this panel, like it's really cool being able to just nail down saying that we're talking about democratic struggles. What we mean by that, and then even to assert the civil rights movement as a revolution. Um, as a democratic struggle and yeah, be able to assert that I think is significant. And then of course the second panel, a new theoretical synthesis, <clears throat> us like getting deeper into what free school has already talked about in terms of Lenin and Du Bois, why like Lenin alone, Leninism alone cannot explain both the past of the American revolutionary past, but also the American revolutionary possibilities are now like, and why Du Bois is important. I think us actually being able to like do the work of explaining that um, will be important. And yeah, and that's just two panels. Like we're not even talking about the round table. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a lot of, mm -hmm. it's exciting, but it's also like, it's a lot of theoretical work, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. No, but that's the thing that also came up in the meeting, which is interesting. I asked Emily about it later, but like people got nervous and I was like, it's, it's, it's okay, it's, don't worry. No, 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 that's not exactly what I wanted to highlight. Because I had asked Emily about it after, and I was like, well, what is it coming from exactly? I remember when we were reflecting from the 10th anniversary and Caleb was talking about um, how some people were responding to the event and how like they're emotionally touched. And I was like, oh shit, like, <laughs> For the first time, I was I was taken aback and actually had to think about what we just did, because I'm not really um, I initially don't see the entirety sometimes of what we're doing because I'm really just focused on what what yeah, the event is yeah. and as in like because I'm more concerned about um, you know thinking about developing the right thing or trying to. Uh, see what we come to and I know that what we what we do is um 
like what we do in the theoretical heavy lifting in the events and the conferences and uh, festivals now um, is important. And it and even if it is new, I don't really see the risk in that until maybe after the fact, um, mm -hmm. because then I can see that, you know, we did uh, break boundaries that um, and different emotional walls that people have. Uh, even like this thing about uh, North and South Korea in the question of communism, that's a big deal. Um, and it has um, historical <clears throat> trauma that people have been hmm. relating to these questions in a, in a lot of ways for a long period of time. And I think that's also something that makes me reflect as we're going forward that when we are developing these things and we have been meeting so long as we do, um, that it is uncharted waters in some ways, um, especially in the fact of like the new uh, theoretical uh, syntheses and things. Like because Emily also mentioned to me that we're kind of advancing mm -hmm. where even Du Bois and Lenin were, um, because we're in our time and we don't. They're not alive right now. You know what I mean? So it's not like they can do what they did when they were alive. But we mm -hmm. have the tools that they did leave. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there is a certain yeah, yeah. There's a certain like awesome responsibility that comes with it. And I just am I'm more reflecting or wanting to emphasize on the fact that um like we as the free school are a part of something that is important and that we are taking risk. But that yeah. risk is also important for us to be able to move forward and to help humanity also move forward, which I think is more important than maybe um, the risk. Um, but no, but I just wanted to say that because I know it could be very, it could be, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. No, I know. Because I'm always there. Just to be honest. But I just wanted to mention it before, you know, people start getting actually really anxious and like bustling with like different little things that we need to do for, to make the thing go. I just want to tell us that we're doing a good job already. And just say, you know, as we're moving forward, I think we're on the right track. So, Yeah, I, um, in our meetings, um, especially on Thursday, I expressed a similar feeling. I, I was feeling a bit uh, overwhelmed with the very thing that Blaze is talking mm -hmm. about. Uh, and, and, and what Sarah is saying, you know, because we are, I guess I would say in our own little way, maybe it's not so little, because uh, Emily said that her father said, you're asking large questions. And his uh, idea was that you should break the large questions down into their parts mm. and be more clear about you know, what you're talking about, something like that. And and I thought a lot about um, what you told me about what he said. And I and then I said, and I, Danny, you'll understand this completely, that it is a dialectic between the holes and the parts, that you cannot clarify the parts like what is revolution yeah. without an overall view of, of what democracy is, what the what the people are doing, etc. And I, I felt, and I still feel, especially 
actually, I, I, I think for myself, I feel, uh, okay, you could call it anxiety, you could call it the pressure of the moment, or, the, and, and you're right about this, Sarah, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves yeah, because of the feeling of the need to get it right mm -hmm. and the sense that we are close to getting it right. I mean, I feel that way myself, but um, I, I just, so I, I, yeah. I, I was feeling the way she was feeling and I still do. And I, I think part of it, uh, you all should know, is in our, you know, going back and forth to even put a title on this. Mm. Mm. And, and Blaise, you're absolutely right. A title that speaks both to the now of the US people, and I wanna to come to that, the question of a people, uh, but also the future. You know, um, it's kind of like King's thing, tomorrow is today. Yeah. But, um, so it's been a, a intellectual kind mm. of thing. Mm. And obviously we want to do, you know, when we're planning, it's always, we want to do the best for the free school. We want to represent the free school as best we can, um, et cetera. Mm. But uh, just on the question of democracy, and what she was saying, Serafina, um, Michelle and I were just speaking to each other this morning, and she asked me, what is aristocracy? How would I define mm. aristocracy? <clears throat> and I said that aristocracy is the oldest and most ancient form, even though it continues to exist in symbolic ways today, form of state power and state organization. Um, now, without going into a lot of talk about that, and I think this is in Black Reconstruction, I think it's in a lot of what Du Bois writes, there is no aristocratic tradition significantly in the United States. We don't have a history of czars, of kings, of queens, or whatever. The closest was an imitation of European aristocracy mm -hmm. in the slave owners, the slaveocracy. What does a democratic struggle look like, not based upon the form that it had to take in Europe, the church, and, and then the landowners and aristocracy, you see what I'm saying? So if you say religion is the opiate of the people, well, pretty much if you have this uh, powerful church that is a part of the aristocratic state, but suppose you don't have that. Religion can be both. And, and we see in the black experience, it also serves a liberatory, uh, function. But my point, I'm just as uh, apropos what, uh, what Michelle and I were talking about, what does the democratic struggle look like where people have already won? Mm, yes. Maybe on paper, 
but they have won democratic rights that the state itself on paper often violated has to be governed by law not by what a king who is anointed by the church says is right or wrong does that make sense mm -hmm. so this gets us to the question of the american people mm -hmm. and i think our um the, one of the assumptions that we perceive from is that we can speak of such a thing as an American people. We're all not the same. Of course, the black people are, like Du Bois said, a nation within a nation, unique characteristics and so on. But nonetheless, in a large sense, view themselves as part of the people. You know what I'm saying? And King, we're all wrapped in a single garment of destiny. What is he saying? The American people. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? This is why uh, you get this, you get uh, people who are rooted in neo-Garveyism, Marcus Garveyism, mm -hmm. and will append to that Malcolm X and a form of separatism, that there's not an American people. There's never been an American people. There's a white people and a black people, and the black people are legally inferior. And now that you can't, that's true. You have to account for that. But you account for it by acknowledging something revolutionary happening in the 50s and 60s. And that's why we, I think, in a legitimate sense, that King's vision authorizes him, at least in our eyes, and it can be argued for, as the foundational figure of a new American people. Mm -hmm. Without King, it doesn't quite make it across the finish line. If you dig what I'm saying, with King, we make it across the finish line. And with King, we see each other differently. Mm -hmm. You know, with that language, because then we see the potential. And that's, that's, that's so much King, the potential potential of this people and the assumption that king is making is that the american revolution forever ended aristocracy and freed the people to struggle for democracy and these 200 400 how many years you want to put it has been this struggle for democracy. I mean, when you dig it, it's a beautiful thing. But then, like Sarah said, what is the struggle for democracy now going forward? Given, and this is what we're also saying, a nation which has a revolutionary history. 
People say revolution means that you've been successful. No, no, no. Sometimes revolutions advance incremental change, quantitative change. And, and see, this, this is what uh, where I guess we're, we were, you know, Emily and, and Sarah and I were just debating, not debating, but discussing, is it always all or nothing? Revolution or nothing? You see what I'm saying? No, it's not that. And that's why I think you mentioned Winston's concept of stages. And stage is based upon what the capacity of the people are. Of course, I think, I've discussed this with uh, Danny, I think, and we, I think we would have a consensus around this, that the capacity of the American people as a people, not just black folk, but as a people might be higher today than it's ever been. That's kind of, and that's, we're trying to link the mark. We'll work it out more. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the symposium, it'll be worked out. It'll be a, a question of further developing, debating, and so on and so forth. Um, just on the, on the synthesis thing, and again, mm -hmm. Lenin had to think of democracy in contradiction to aristocracy, right. the czar, and they always said, and his government. They didn't say the government, just like in England, you could say, you wouldn't say the king and his government, although they symbolically try to act that way. No, it's the, the, the British government. But in Russia, it was the czar, the czar's government. The government ruled because of the authority of the czar. We don't think that way. The American people don't think that way. We do not have that history. So when we think of the democratic struggle, we're thinking of a different history, you know, and so on. Uh, so I think the synthesis, and of course, uh, I, I often think of state and revolution as not just a further elaborating of angles and marks, but angles, the origin, private. Yeah, the origin of the private. What's the, what's the title? Uh, family, private property in the state. Yeah, right, right, right. One of my favorite books of all times. But, but he is also saying, what is the objective of the democratic struggle? And he has to think not, you know, going forward from John Locke or even Rousseau, but he's thinking in some ways against them. It is, I, I could see an argument that state and revolution is a debate with Locke and the tradition of bourgeois liberalism. Right. So yeah, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Can I just make one last point? And the other thing is the involvement of many other organizations. Danny, we want you. Um, of course, Rosa, Wentai, and the woman who yeah. is the president. Yeah. Who? Yeah. Who? 
Aaron. 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 I, I've messaged people. I messaged Rose. Oh, yeah. And, went to and we would like you and Aaron okay. to be speakers. I'll message Aaron then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, Midwest Marxist, um, which we're going to do a Zoom, getting to know each mm -hmm. other with them next week. Yeah. And uh, also, Stan Willis, the gentleman that was here last time. And 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 of course we'll see, you know, but to make it a, a bigger a discussion. Uh, and of course the round table, we haven't fully worked that out yet. Because of course, how does the round table is the round table repeating what the previous panels did? Or, you know, I think the way I think the way you put it, uh, Sarah. The, the working out of the practical tasks, mm -hmm. the practical ideological problems. For example, mm -hmm. um, how does um, Eric Foner's work reconstruction relate to uh, Du Bois's black reconstruction? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, this is a big question, by the way, does Eric Foner's work supersede and make, uh, how would you say, make Black Reconstruction obsolete, obsolete, yeah, obsolete. Mm -hmm. That's a big, a lot of people think it does. You know, it's a large, impressive volume that is repeatedly reprinted, you know, since 1987, 85, when it was, I think it was published somewhere around the 50th anniversary of Black Reconstruction. And I don't think that was just coincidental mm -hmm. because it is, it let, in a lot of ways, a response. I think Eric Fonan would argue, oh, I'm sorry, in a minute, uh, Jerry, in, in a lot of ways, he would consider it a friendly uh, uh, response mm -hmm. and further development of Black Reconstruction. I think we would see it a bit differently. Uh, there is a strong ideological difference on the question of democracy mm -hmm. and its future. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other thing, just one small other thing. Oh 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 oh. Uh, you know, like Kathy was at a conference of the American mm -hmm. Historical Association. And they had a panel on teaching Black Reconstruction, not teaching just Reconstruction, mm -hmm. right. teaching Black Reconstruction in high school. Hmm. Is it? I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. It. It's interesting because the panel emerges. I think I mentioned it to a couple of folks so far. It emerges from the Howard Zinn Education Project, mm -hmm. very prominent. Uh, I suppose, organization trying to reform American public school history education, social science education. Mm -hmm. um, but it was overwhelmingly interesting that in the last few years, they've come to the topic of reconstruction being definitely very challenging for any teacher <laughs> to try to understand and then try to teach. Usually there's not enough time or there really are what they say was like, you know, competing narratives, but what we would call the ideological struggle <laughs> involved in trying to understand and interpret it. And it they picked on the issue 
of states passing laws that um, hmm. prevent or make difficult the teaching of divisive concepts of history as sort of an attack on uh, critical race theory or attack on um, woke ideology. And so they felt very like this is a very defensive project, but the way they have come out with a report um, called Teaching Teach Reconstruction, which I think you can find online as well, they were, first of all, promoting it as being endorsed by Eric Foner. That was one of their biggest selling points. And then second of all, they wanted to, they, they did repeatedly invoke Du Bois, even though among them they also invoked a lot of contemporary scholars <laughs> that were very also um, much in the vein of doing this from a very different standpoint. I feel as if it was just the stakes that they see it in is very different than how we understand it as, you know, very crucial to helping people, helping us all understand the revolutionary American process versus they would say it is reacting to perhaps Trumpism or different like right. reaction, like what they deem as fascist or reactionary tendencies. So even though they will somehow position Du Bois as being so, sort of, um, you know, part of their project. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all that's to say is that I met people in that room. I only caught a little bit of it because I had a very busy day that day um, that had also expressed so much interest in Black Reconstruction oh, and it helped us realize how hot of a topic it is yeah. more broadly even than just that top, uh, altogether. Mm -hmm. um, writers for TV shows that had been doing um, like doing reading groups of Black Reconstruction the last year alongside like academics who have been trying to resuscitate it in their own kind of way. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't mean to say all that to say that like um, we need to investigate all of them, but I think there's, we are trying to keep a pulse on what's, what else is being, mm -hmm. how else is Black Reconstruction being talked about and all their different interpretations and how they stray away from what we're trying to do in some ways. Just one small yeah. thing. Yeah, this is so important. Mm -hmm. I think I shared with a lot of people a discussion between Eric Foner mm -hmm. and Henry Louis Gates mm -hmm. on Black Reconstruction. And uh, whereas in the past, there even in Horn's uh, Nation, art, Nation mm -hmm. article, he you know, on the question of the general strike, he said, well, it wasn't a general strike, it was more like a wildcat strike, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that will come back to him in another time. But in this Henry Louis Gates, Eric Foner thing, they acknowledge, Henry Louis Gates acknowledge it begins with the black worker, that's the first chapter. Uh, and then there's the general strike discussion. So it is a seriousness about this and of course when there's a essay in the new york times on the editorial page kind of um, praising something you know at least this concept of abolitionist democracy but here i think and i think uh, kathy you will agree with me the difference and if and I, I well i'm going to turn it over to jeremiah in a minute um is that they see it just as you said, as a part of the not the 
but liberals struggle against fascism. And that's in Henry Louis Gates, that's in uh, and Eric Foner's discussion, uh, and it's all over the place. So, I mean, mm. you know, like they say, uh, a concession has been made, but let's not confuse the concession with a ideological victory for black reconstruction mm -hmm. or for the concept even when they use the concept abolition democracy mm. they're talking about well they well you know liberal the liberal struggle to maintain mm -hmm. control of the state but go ahead cherry no well even what you're saying and what kathy was saying it makes me think about how in a lot of ways, reading Black Reconstruction contrary to those narratives, it actually makes you either embrace or take or see the possibility more, even in the Trump movement. And that it's one of those ironic things where they're using it against Trump, but actually we see it more of like, oh, actually, Black Reconstruction helps you to clarify and understand, like from an explanatory standpoint, like, oh, this is why, like, what Trump, like, what's happening with the Trump movement beyond even Trump himself is so significant because you could interpret it as a break away from the kind of consensus that Du Bois talks about with the counter revolution of property, the sort of mm. like the, the, the white, the ruling class being able to like grab the white worker and to make the white worker think that his interests were aligned with the, with the, with the capitalist class and all that stuff. Um, and I think that that's an important point that needs to be made um, at some point. But the, the other thing I was going to say is that even on the- Can I just make- Yeah. See, just a small point. Because in Henry Louis Gates and Eric Foner, they say it's a Marxist mm. interpretation of reconstruction. They say that about Du Bois. Right. Now, the question is, yes, uh, Du Bois is appropriating Marx and class and all of that. But he's also, this is where the synthesis is so important. I think it is, if it is Marxist, it's more towards Lenin. Right. Uh, then, but I'll, I'll just stop. Yeah, because, yeah, so I, I have been reading um, State and Revolution by Lenin mm -hmm. the past few days. And I think even to this question of democracy and revolution, it's like after reading Lenin, it makes me feel or consider whether one of the principal differences or almost departures that we're making with Du Bois and with the American revolutionary process is Lenin identifies democracy and revolution primarily with the state and the state mm -hmm. form. Whereas it's almost like we, like we're working towards a, a thesis, which is saying that we identify democracy and revolution with the state, but also with the social movement. And from the bottom. From the bottom. And, yeah. and I think that, that I say that partially because, you know, if we think about this question of like the dialectic, but also what you've been writing mm -hmm. about with mm -hmm. like the trialectic or the dialectic of, of threes, if you think about it from like a conceptual standpoint, like the whole, class dialectic is the proletariat like overcoming the capitalist class like being born out of the like being born out of that like a new form 
But if you think about the fact that if you have to consider race as not just a social contract, but an actual social organization of society, then it's a different kind of dialectic because it's not the black, like it's not like black people needing to supersede white people, mm. right? It's a new interaction. Like there needs to be a new interaction which creates something new, but it's not just black people like being on top of white people, right? And it, it's it's mm. different qualitatively than like the proletariat overcoming the bourgeoisie. And I think that we have to consider both of those kinds of dialectics operating and that leads to different considerations of actually what is a revolution because one, and I'm still trying to think this out, but one could say that the revolution as seen through American history is not just the overturning of the rule of a, of a class or of the overturning of a particular rule of a class through the state, but it is also the overturning and transformation of a kind of social relation. Yeah. And I think that like for me, it's still very hazy, but I feel like that that's one of the important points that we could be making with the Du Bois event because, like, something that people say a lot is that racism is an outgrowth of capitalism, mm. right? And I think that is that is true, but like, how do you explain the fact that even while, or like, racism is an outgrowth of imperialism, how can you explain the fact that even while like from the 50s onwards, American imperialism was strengthening and growing more like global, more rapacious, all of these things. But simultaneously, how is it that the civil rights movement was able to actually like, actually like overcome, to be in a process of overcoming racism while that simultaneous process is happening with imperialism. And that's not to say that they're disconnected, but that there's, a different kind of dynamic that's possible given the kind of conditions of American history that have unfolded um, through, because of basically going back to like the existence of the slave, the black worker and like existing within the framework. But yeah, I, I've just been thinking about that in relation to Lenin and Du Bois because I think in a lot of ways, something that I like about reading Lenin is that and also Du Bois, but Lenin in particular, he, it's very clear that it's a work of theory, but it's when mm. it's, it's precisely a work of abstract thinking becoming concrete, mm -hmm. becoming very concrete because he's having to think through not just theoretical, but also ultimately practical questions of, okay, like there has been a so-called revolution where the Mensheviks have allied with like the bourgeois Democrats, and this is what they propose for Russia, but like we propose something different and we're going to implement this. And like, it's like the, it's like the abstract becoming concrete. Um, and I think that that in a lot of ways is also like the kind of thinking that we're doing in this time of like mm -hmm. theoretical questions becoming very concrete. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. This is, Danny reminds me of the Lenin's uh, phrase that you uh, told me about last week how the concrete, a concrete study of the concrete. Mm -hmm. It is so uh, poignant, a concrete study of the concrete, which requires a theoretical framing of the concrete to study the, but the other thing is, uh, this is, and this is um, uh, Serafina's point mm -hmm. about uh, 
new categories of knowledge. And, you know, the Black worker as not just a concrete form of the working class, but a category through which to understand the fight for democracy and the class struggle itself. The other thing, I, you know, I think a lot of people, this, uh, this is so interesting, is not the class conflict itself an expression of the democratic struggle from below, as you say, and is not the democratic struggle an expression of the class struggle. Hence, Montgomery, Alabama, 1955. The church is not the church, a form of class organization. You know, we're going down to the church of the overcomer. I mean, it's, does it get more working class than this? You know, are they not? And then of course, if you say that the, that the, the class struggle is the democratic struggle, are we then not saying that the class struggle is a political struggle almost always? And uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll shut up there, but I think that's where we're going with this thing of democracy and then even the synthesis, because what are we, we have to be clear about what we're synthesizing about Lenin and Du Bois. Why the synthesis? And we haven't worked it out yet. And what are we synthesizing? And I think you, I think you, you got it right in a lot of ways uh, on this, Jeremiah. It is about democracy, it is about the state, but it is about this concept of, well, I guess as Derek puts it, unusual, unusual dynamics. Unusual dynamics. That's what I was yeah, unique mm -hmm. dynamics, unique dialectics, yes. uh, theorizing from the standpoint of a people and a nation that I you're talking about democracy, but not as an anti-aristocratic struggle, not as a struggle for democracy against aristocratic institutions and the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because when we think of the church in the United States, we're not thinking of the Catholic church. That's one of them. But most people, when they say the church, they mean the church they go to. You know what I'm saying? One question, actually, I was talking to a coworker about the other day was the difference between a coup and a revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because I think this is part of the conversation we're having is a lot of people really just make those things synonymous, just this violent overthrow of a small group of people in the state. Um, and I guess the things that come to my mind, I think part of what I'm hearing is this idea that Lenin talked about of, you can't have a real revolution without revolutionary theory, revolutionary ideas, as well as, you know, revolution. Or, and a revolutionary party. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, but a party that's united with the majority of people, yes. uh, a, a party that actively tries to unite the majority of working people. Whereas I think a coup in my mind, I mean, I don't know what the exact <clears throat> definition is, but when I think of coup, I think of a group of people that's actively working to divide people and is separate from the people in a very significant way. Um, 
and as well as seeing only violent needs of military in order to maintain that. Mm -hmm. So I just think that question is something that, especially in America, it's it was, it's very trouble troubling that people that we can only see revolution through this very top-down way, this very brutal um, uh, and rigid uh, mm -hmm. way. So mm -hmm. I just thought, I don't know what your answer no, no, to that. I think but. it's very important. You know, um, I just brought a book today for Jeremiah by Richard Pipes called The Russian Revolution, which might be the best um, history of the Russian Revolution. And that doesn't mean it's all agreed with. But there are two interpretations. So you got John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World mm -hmm. from below. You get Richard Pipes, the Russian Revolution, who does see it as a coup, oh. you know? Um, but the Russian Revolution was hardly violent at all. I don't know whether John Reed makes this point. I think he does. But the fact of the matter is the state collapsed. Don't forget in February, the czar and his family fled the Winter Palace and they gave in. Just like the Qing Dynasty, am I pronounced the Qing? Qing Dynasty in 1911 fled. And Sun Yat-sen. And so the state collapsed. And the revolutionaries, in this case, Lenin, said, this is the way we move forward. Um, I don't know, and you're right about this, Jerry. We got to work this out in the round table. Will, can we, oh God, this is, a, this is a complexity. Can we look at a collapse of the U.S. state? This very modern, very powerful instrument. It's not like the czar is old, decrepit, over the hill, or the Xing dynasty. I mean, thousands years old, you know, you know, on its last legs and, you know, kind of buried itself, uh, which gives greater meaning to what I think you're saying, Jerry, the people become more important. And this is this yeah. thing mm -hmm. of movement and party. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And just one small last point. This is uh, Danny and I, we go back, we've been discussing this. If Trump, and we can't, you know, we can't be these kind of purists where you can't mention Trump unless you call him a fascist. Trump is in terms of American politics, there has not been, maybe since Lincoln, a, a political figure that so dominated the politics of the nation. I mean, you can't open up a newspaper or turn on the news and the first or second story is not something about Trump. So Trump, what Trump does will have a big impact mm -hmm. upon the politic. And again, the democratic struggle, the class struggle mm -hmm. is not ultimately is by definition political, a political struggle rooted in the democratic struggle. But if Trump decides 
to run as an independent. Mm -hmm. Can I, you mind if I say what you said to it? Sure. Uh, over at Allison and Adam's crib, you know, me and Danny, we should have been having more fun. We were having fun. And, um, and Caleb, we're rapping the whole time. And Danny says that if Trump decides to run as an independent, he will support Trump and join the, the campaign. Is that, is that fair to say? Sure. I took that to mean not just what Danny would do, but a lot of the young disenchanted people who supported Bernie Sanders and were betrayed now find themselves in various movements, MAGA communists, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, the betrayal of the young generation and it reclaiming, and this is it, reclaiming the young generation through this struggle, literally against the state. I mean, maybe Trump won't see it that way, or maybe he does see it that way. But certainly, young people, let us say, who were 20 when they came out supporting Bernie are now close to 30 have had all of these experiences, have not given up on their dreams. And that's that's very important. And that's, I'm talking a little too much, but that gets to your point that the democratic struggle is deep rooted in the American people and in young people mm -hmm. whose college educations and educations tell them they should be cynical. Enough of them still believe in their dreams and they're going to find a way to make those dreams a reality mm -hmm. among young people. Mm -hmm. uh, and if this goes down like Danny and I were talking, it is, and I use the word loosely, a revolution, a radical redoing of American politi politics. Trump begins with having gotten 74 million votes in 2020, the second highest. Biden got the most, and you know we don't know who was counting all the votes, by the way. <laughs> I'm so suspicious of the 2020 election. Uh, but anyway, the guy starts. No American politician that I can, and somebody do, can do the history, they might find it. No American politician has ever had the loyalty of so many millions of people. No one. That is a qualitatively new situation. Okay, I'll just I'll shut my mouth. But we, we, I think in the town hall, we're gonna to have to tease yeah, this that's, out. That's the question. You know, any, anybody else? Danny, wanna say something like that? Okay. 
just excited for the event. Say that again. I'm just excited for the event. It's for good. Sure. Now that we've kind of flushed it out, and you know, we've we've been reading, preparing for it. Now that it's falling into yeah. place, and yeah. we've seen all the sticks, I'm excited for what we're doing. And I'm always so interested in hearing the stories of your parents. I won't name everybody's parents, but when you know, members of the free school tell me that, well, my dad uh, voted for Trump. And you say, well, why? He said, you know, one, and I, I get this from two people, I won't name them, but, I, but two people, you know, your dad said the same thing. The media was lying. <laughs> Can I, can I, can I yeah, use yeah. your name? Okay. I'll use <laughs> Jeremiah's dad. And, and, and Samir's dad. I, I know Samir's dad. I don't know Jeremiah's dad. But, you know, your dad said the same thing. The media was lying so badly. He must be doing something right. It was a deductive argument, I guess you could call it that. But... Now, of course, you take black folk. We're burdened, and, and, and I put quotes around this. You know, uh, FDR, John F. Kennedy, Johnson, the civil rights movement, the civil rights bills, and Obama. You know, so there's a certain emotional, practical, even ideological connection to a Democratic Party that no longer exists. And by the way, so many black folk are now coming to this conclusion. And the failure of the black misleadership class to change the Democratic Party in our behalf. And when people look at like uh, uh, cities with black mayors, black the black congressional caucus voting for these military budgets, nothing changing, in a city like Philadelphia, more violent, less educated, more dirty, more homeless, more, you know, they're saying, wait a minute. The promise of FDR or even Obama, whatever that meant, symbolically, have not been fulfilled. And then in 2022, young Black people increased their vote for, for Republicans by 22%. I think it may have been 2020, of course, an increase of 22%. That is not a small matter. Now these are, I think they were saying 20 to 40 year olds, you know, um, not the most, not the highest voting group, but nonetheless, if it is happening, if black people are leaving the Democratic Party. We know Mexican-Americans and other Latin, Latin, uh, Spanish speakers are. Asians, a similar process. This, this is huge. And if he comes forward with this movement, which means he's not constrained by the, uh, uh, the part of the Republican Party which will stab him in the back. I think he knows this. His chances at running as a Republican are severely reduced because of the Mitch McConnell's, the you know, the Republican Party establishment, which would unite with the Bi with Biden, who looks like he will be their candidate, 
to take Trump down, anybody but Trump. As an independent, he doesn't have to make any compromises. I don't know what y'all think of, Danny, what do you, do you think he would make that move as an independent? How do you read the tea leaves? I don't, I don't, I don't think so, but I don't. Oh, you don't think yeah. so? Okay. I mean, it would be great, but I don't. That's my prediction. <laughs> you know, you're not feeling too too optimistic this morning. <laughs> well, it's just—I mean, it's just my prediction. I don't. Yeah, all. yeah. The stakes know. are very high, of course. Mm -hmm. That kind of move. I feel like he would have to do it today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's already 2023. Yeah. It's a question of timing. He has to get. Yeah. I mean, if there was the bull noose party, right? Like yeah. that, I don't know. It's just a prediction. It's not a what I like. It's just a prediction. Well, the last one that did it was um, the guy with the Ross Perot. Yeah, Ross Perot. Yeah. And it was a, he damn near won. He split the vote, I think, in 1992, three ways, which literally gave the election to Bill Clinton. Without Ross, Ross Perot, uh, Old man Bush, the old Bush, would have won, I think. But it was because of Ross Perot that Clinton could win. But Ross Perot was not starting from a put, and you know he, I mean he was a character in his own right, but he was running on you know too many taxes. What are we getting for this? You know, just an anti kind of, but not Trump, not a Trump thing where he's taking on foreign policy and domestic policy and the elites that run the state. If I would, if, to answer the question I asked Danny, I think it's better than 50-50 that he will run as an independent. He can't run in the, there is no, there is no path in the Republican Party. If, now he's already announced that he's running. He did not say that he will be running as a Republican, remember. And the speech that he gave was not a speech trying to win over his opposition in the Republican Party. And there are, I put it, there are study political and, and um, uh, a statistic, not statistical, uh, political studies over and over again recently that show that the Republicans or the Trump wing of the Republicans are the work is becoming a working class party. This is not in. So if Trump is serious about running, I don't think he could run in the Republican Party because his base and this is what the 2022 election showed. The people who vote for Trump are voting for him because he's going against yeah. established Republicans. Yeah. And, and even if you take Arizona with the woman that lost mm -hmm. for, um, for governor, mm -hmm. what they are saying is that they were stabbed in the back by Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? This, I mean, it's such a fluid moment and it's so pregnant 
with all of the questions of democracy, as you put it, from below. The people are determining this, either by voting or not voting. I think Trump understands this as well as anyone. <laughs> but, but go ahead, go ahead, Jay. Oh no, just reading some comments. Um, Nathan, Todd, Allison, Stephen Palmier all say good morning. Uh, Stephen Palmier asks, where he says, Trump has the Republican Party sewn up. Why would he throw that organization out? He's never worried about any opposition in the Republican establishment. He trounces them in debates. And I think that that, that is, it's a valid point because Trump does still hold influence in the Republican Party and people have different opinions about how influent, like exactly how influential he is. Um, even in terms of like the recent like Freedom Caucus, Speaker of the House situation, some people were saying, oh, actually, he's not that influential. Mm-hmm. But other, I think it, it is true that like they're trying to paint him as someone whose influence in the party is decreasing. Yes. And that may be true. But I think still a lot of people are scared to go against Trump outright within the GOP. Um, and then Jahan says... Good morning. Maybe if Trump is treated badly in the Republican Party, he can run as a third party candidate. It'd be interesting if the Freedom Caucus and Trump developed a quote unquote freedom party. If this is the greatest crisis since the Civil War, we can look back to the election of 1860, in which a third party candidate, Abraham Lincoln of the new Republican Party at that time, beat multiple candidates to win. Um, Virginia Mm -hmm. Cotts also says good morning. Is everybody aware of that? I no, I, oh, this I is very, it. very important. The Republican Party that Lincoln ran, I think at, at first, did he run as a Whig in 1856? And then the Whig Party died, and then they invent the Republican Party, which was a completely new party. You know what I'm saying? So this is not, there is precedence for this. And as Jahan says that, oh, what's Jahan say? Oh, as John, um, the greatest crisis since the Civil War. So if there's an analog maybe that we could look back to, it is the crisis of the Civil War period, mm-hmm. crisis over slavery, which was the crisis over democracy. But I'm sorry, maybe the other. The important difference between then and now, though, is sort of the, the structure of the electoral process in this country. It's That's right. much more consolidated among these two parties, and it's much more difficult to break through that, mm-hmm. I think, since that time, as far well, as I understand. But the division, the divisions over slavery and free soil, let us put it that way, mm-hmm. were, are, are, were analog, are analogous to the divisions today. And like you say, um, you know, you can win an election and lose the people. You can lose an election and win the people. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Which is back to your point, Jerry, of democracy from the people and a people who have the capacity to know, to see, to evaluate, to make judgments, not all the same, not all this, you know, like you say, your dad said, hey man, they're lying so much about this guy. He must be, there must be something good in him Mm -hmm. that he's, you know, so on and so forth. But nonetheless, however people arrive at this, 
the engagement or involvement of people in politics is greater today. And in fact, the, it's a, how do I put it? If you look at the political universe, the political of institutions, individuals, parties, the masses, the people are more politicized today than any time I know in your memory or in mine. Go, go ahead. Well, yeah, because I think part of the reason why earlier I was saying that we could hypothetically identify like even these questions of democracy and revolution, not only with the overturning of a state, but with a true people's movement is because it's like in the process, even if you, whether you look at like the civil war, like the abolitionist movement, the emancipation movement, the general strike, or if you look at the civil war or the civil civil rights period, it's like these kinds of particular kinds of social movements, which are aimed at the remaking of the social relation amongst the people it's like it's so interesting how those movements themselves also it's almost like they bend the entire country but also including politics including the state itself towards that it's like it, because the way that um could you could you form a bending it's like it's a, it's almost like the way that du bois talks about you know abraham lincoln mm -hmm. he didn't start out in the civil war like mm -hmm. being like no, pro-emancipation yeah. mm -hmm. but it's like the black worker the crucial significance of the black worker to the victory or defeat of the Union Army. It's like they bended Lincoln towards becoming mm. a force for emancipation. And mm. it's, I don't know like exactly how to relate this to like even what Lenin was laying out, but it's similar to even the civil rights movement where it's like they weren't exactly aimed at like taking over state power, but still mm. they bent the entire government towards them and they bent it almost to the point of breaking it basically mm. and even even trump like even trump it's like it's so this movement has like bent all of obviously all of political discourse but even like you could say even like the government towards it and the question is like can can a movement emerge which is aimed at both like completing the task of the civil rights movement in terms of the the complete remaking of social relations among the people, mm -hmm. which also bends all of like, yeah, all of like the existing actual state itself towards it in a way which could wow. like potentially overcome. This is very um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Any more comments? Uh, Stephen Palmier says, Tulsi Gabbard has a real opportunity to start an alternative party that unites a class-oriented coalition. I, I would say Tulsi Gabbard has the possibility, which I think she's going to do. It's just like us. Um, if Trump runs, for, Tulsi Gabbard will support Trump even if he runs as a Republican. But if he runs as an independent, she will be a part of his movement, whatever it's called. I know she, you know, and then of course she might run for the U.S. Senate from Hawaii yeah. uh, in that kind of uh, configuration. Right. All kind of if if Trump runs as a, an, an an independent movement makes a lot of things possible which are not possible within 
the two-party configuration. I mean, it's like it's like a new situation. And of course, <laughs> this is why I, I guess we're going to, you know, whether we, well, I know we have to take up the Trump question. Right. There's no way we can just, you know, walk around and not mm. take this, this movement seriously. And what, what are its possibilities? And yeah, I'll see, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you had mentioned your skepticism about the 2022 campaign. Yes. Or the 2020 campaign. Both. And I was going to mention my skepticism about the 2000 campaign. And, you know, it keeps going back. And Emil and I were talking on Thursday about uh, President Nixon and uh, his, his the way we were talking a little bit about <coughs> coup d'etat and uh, revolution and how Nixon had, um, well, Mila and I were talking about how Nixon had uh, bridged the gap between China, ended the Vietnam War, and then uh, was made out to be uh, a crook and um, basically forced to resign. But it turned out that deep throat relief came from uh, the FBI. And uh, it reminded me about uh, we haven't had time to discuss the Twitter files, which I'm not really sure I understand the whole scope of it, but it looks like uh, national <laughs> security interests manipulated social media. Could, through... I just, everybody might not know what you're talking about, about uh, Watergate, Deep Throat. Sure. If, if you don't, unless you want to, I mean, there's... I don't know anything about it. Well, it's <laughs> very important. Um... <laughs> You know, uh, I have to say I hate I hated Nixon all the time. I mean, as much as you can hate somebody you don't know. But <laughs> the question of the way he was taken down, and you know, among the issues that one would have to consider were uh, the opening to China. The other thing is, would the war in Vietnam have ended sooner? Was, was he prepared in this move towards China and this, you know, this vision of a new uh, political world order? Did that mean going along with that withdrawing from Vietnam? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But one thing we do know, and this is a thing they kept secret for about 40 some years or maybe more, who was deep throat? Because there were two Washington Post journalists that broke the story, Bob Woodward, who was still active in talks, and the other guy, I forget his name. What was the other guy's name? Danny, Danny. Woodward and two young Washington, young. Daniel Ellsberg? Huh? Ellsberg. No, 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 not Ellsberg. That's the uh, the uh, Pentagon Papers. But there was um, anyway. There were two of them, two young Washington, and they got the story from a person they claim was Deep Throat. Come to find out that this was an FBI agent. 
So the question, which is still out there, and because Nixon was so hated, people didn't, don't give, you know, you know, F him, he's gone, so on and so forth. But the question of what was the role of the FBI, which meant the state, the deep state, in bringing him down? And why did they have a, why were they interested in bringing him down? Because Watergate was something so small. In other words, a group of people associated with the Republican Party broke into a Democratic, well, maybe the Democratic Party headquarters in a hotel called the Watergate. I mean, something like that today would be brushed, in, oh God, just a, a bunch of bunglers, didn't know what the hell they were doing, trying to, may, I don't know what they were trying to get because back then things were so simplified and, you know, I don't know. But anyway, something so small leads to a president being brought down. Really, something small and uh, such. So when you get to the Twitter file, the Twitter files make Watergate look like kindergarten kids. You know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, I, 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 I cut you off some minutes. So. No, yeah, I mean, that brings us to the present with uh, the Twitter gate, we'll call it. Yeah, and, and explain what the Twitter files are. In case people. I guess Elon Musk. Elon, uh, yeah, there's all these uh, posts. Elon Musk is working with journalists. Uh, now, Elon Musk bought thing. Twitter. Yeah, he bought Twitter, and I guess he's uh, trying to spend that money in a very narcissistic way just to get back at people very pettily. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. No, maybe, maybe not. I'll hold on. There could be a political point here. Yeah, he's making a political point. Because what he what the Twitter file and he released them to a journalist, mm -hmm. Matt Taibbi, who is not mainstream. Mm -hmm. Right? He's uh, a non-mainstream critic of the establishment. Elon Musk released these files, and it's not the totality, showing that the FBI, here we are again, FBI, were involved with Twitter and Facebook, in particular Twitter, in suppressing certain stories. In other words, you know, I use algorithms, and then if the algorithms don't work, you got these people who are supposed to protect our democracy and freedom of speech, right? In Twitter. And they monitor certain sites. Thus far, you know, I hope you don't mind just thus far, the big story that they show was suppressed at the urgings and the direction of the FBI was the Hunter Biden story, which linked Biden himself, the current president, to the Ukraine and to money making in, in uh, this, uh, this energy company, Burisma, in the Ukraine. Now, okay, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead, Samir. No, that's a good summary. And, it, you know, it's uh, Elon Musk has his own motives. Maybe he wants to get into politics. Uh, but he definitely bought Twitter. 
because as he said, it was the public sphere. Yeah. And and he's a libertarian. And he's a libertarian and he's uh, got some sort of commitment to freedom of speech. But also yeah. Bezos has bought, uh, you know, the Washington Post mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg Berg owns Facebook, which mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. has all these algorithms mm -hmm. and they, uh, you know, sometimes they shadow ban people. Mm -hmm. Like I follow Vanessa Bealey and Ayla Barrett. But if I don't actually look at their profile, I can't see their stuff coming to my feed. So I, I'm aware that they're uh, very pro-Syria journalists. Mm -hmm. But I'm aware that uh, that information is being um, is being uh, hidden from me. Um, but it just goes to show that uh, the every president from Nixon and probably Johnson to now has been uh, on the side of the security state. And it's just so shocking to me that uh, so-called leftists can't make this connection today. Well, can I just interrupt you? It's not, yeah, you said on the side of the security state or recognizing that the real center of power is the security state. Mm -hmm. That being president does not mean that you're over the FBI. The FBI might know some things about you or your family, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the case of Biden and Hunter Biden, his son, the state were protecting them from the um, uh, journalists and others in social media who were talking about, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, uh, that, uh, he, that oh, Hunter Biden, this guy is a damn mess. He took his laptop with all of this information <laughs> about his father, even about himself. And he's a fucked up cat. I mean, he's, oh. he's a sick man. I put it that way. All that shit was on the laptop. He took it to be fixed. To a, um, a, to a a repair shop, a repair shop in Wilmington, Delaware, and the cat turned it over. I don't well, because he, about because he forgot about it, and after a certain time under like legal agreements, yeah. then the property it becomes a property oh, of the store. Oh, yeah. And all it's of, not like he even stole it. It was just like and so the New York Post, which is a tabloid newspaper, got this shit and they were reporting on it. This is at the very moment that we're having the 2020 election. If this becomes part of, and this was a razor thin election, let nobody tell you otherwise because of the electoral college, a few thousand votes. 2020 was a repeat of 2016. And had the story of Hunter Biden which is the story about Joe Biden been revealed, this would have been a center point of the debate. And a corrupt, because see they, see the thing, if I might just say, 2020 and more so in 2022 and 2024, they have to criminalize Trump and his closest associates. What the Hunter Biden thing does is to flip the narrative. Oh, you're saying I'm a criminal? Well, look at what these guys are doing. Now you get this whole thing 
of the um, uh, of, of Twitter of the Twitter thing, but um, uh, Biden himself over the last seven years, having had classified documents in not just one house but several houses. Right, right. So. I mean, so you're trying to criminalize this guy, right? And now, are you are you an equal criminal, or maybe a worse criminal? It's it's you you see what I'm, you see the fluidity and the contradictoriness of the whole situation. You take a cat like uh, like Elon Musk. You know when it gets to understanding all of what you know drives people to do things you say well he's a multi he's the richest man in the world why would he go against the establishment well, that's a good question the fact of the matter is he is going against what is the current establishment who is the current establishment by coastal elite east and west coast elite wall street and silicon valley and in between everything else the banks big financial institutions, and high big tech. And then you throw in there uh, one of Samir's favorites, cryptocurrencies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but no, holy I mean, you, you put all of this in the fucking mix. People are breaking in different ways. We don't know. Does he, what are, what are his, why would Elon Musk do this? Why would he, why would he even buy Twitter? Forty billion. I mean, I mean, okay, he's a trillionaire. Forty billion might not be a lot to him, but why would he even f with this? Yeah. But the fact of the matter, we'll, maybe we'll learn that fifty years from now when he writes his autobiography. <laughs> but for the time being, the political effect is that the ruling class, the only way they can run against Trump effectively is to make him a criminal and, and his movement a fascist movement. Mm -hmm. But now the shit turns, becomes the opposite. Oh, now the Republicans under this guy, this pro-Trump congressman from Ohio, Jim Jordan, and these are not the perfect people. I mean, you know, he doesn't speak like a, a Harvard-educated lawyer or a professor. He's not, you know, He's a, a rough-hewn cat out of Ohio. I don't know where the hell he's from, but he he's a, you know, and fingers and... It's just like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know? I mean, I don't know whether you want to have her over for dinner, but the effect of what she is doing, you know? And this is... See, this is what we're interested in from our point of view because we're not making decisions from the level of the elite. Let them do that. Let them handle their contradictions, which are also contradictions produced by the alienation of the people from the establishment. But we're looking at how's this affecting the people. I know Emily, her union, she's always talking to union members. You know what I'm saying? You know, we're churches and shit. How, how do people see this? But the effect is that you can't call Trump a criminal 
without calling Biden a criminal. And now Jim Jordan and them are going to have a, a church type commission. Senator Church from the state of, you know, always to get, bring everything up to date. Senator Church from the state of Idaho, small state, initiated in the mid 70s an investigation of the illegal activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. And it might have had something to do with his short life. Suddenly he has cancer, you know. Mm, but, Aww. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> you pay a price. You attack the CIA, you don't live. Exactly. But, yeah. Uh, he sets up a committee or in a committee that he headed in the U.S. Senate to investigate the illegal activity of the CIA in domestic politics. The CIA, the FBI, you know, division of the like, FBI handle domestic, CIA handle foreign, you know? And they're not operating in the interest of democracy, I can tell you that. And they found, and I forget everything, but it was enough to bring into question the operations of the deep state, what we call the deep state, in the day-to-day -day lives of democratic movements. Mm -hmm. What is this whole fucking thing about that we're looking at? I think there's a reason mm -hmm. to analyze all these, be it the Twitter files, be it the criminalization and labeling all these people as fascists, the way this January 6th committee, which was a show trial of the worst type, you know what a show trial is. It's not based on law, it's based upon, I'm gonna take all the people and put them on trial. And, and you know, I already know they're guilty, but it's a trial to show that they're guilty to the public. That's what January, because it wasn't the Justice Department, whatever that is, going after people or local prosecutors going after people it was the january 6th committee establishing guilt and remember that whole narrative about when is garlic wasn't garland Mer merrick garland whatever the guy that's the head of the justice attorney general when is he going to act the january 6th committee has exposed all of this and these people are criminals and we got pictures of them climbing through the windows and attacking our police officers and so many of them didn't turn out nobody died on january 6th cat had a heart attack on january 7th or 8th another cat committed suicide so i mean the cat had problems going in so don't blame it on you know what I'm saying? Don't blame it on that cat with the moose head on. Remember that dude? Yeah, I do. He was a I wonderful do. cat. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I dug that cat. He was just walking around, you know. <laughs> yeah, just such a beautiful cat, man. Tom, did you see they have a Brazilian version? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna go to that yet. I don't want to make that because see, this this feeds into that narrative yeah. of Trump 
and Bannon are responsible for the Brazil. Let's hold yeah. them aside. For, let's deal with our homegrown situation. This, so the church committee back in the 70s showed this. So now the Republicans, through the, not through the Senate, through the House of Representatives, are setting up a similar investigation of the deep state's involvement in people's movements. Mm -hmm. And what they're saying, among other things, I don't know everything they're gonna say, is that there were agent provocateurs planted in the January 6th thing, mm -hmm. that in that thing in Michigan, where they're talking about these these cats from a farm, from farm somewhere in Michigan, cats that had no means, no way to do anything, are suddenly conspirators who want to kidnap the governor, mm -hmm. and and then come to find out the person who made the suggestion was an FBI plant. So I, I just say all of this. It, it gets back to our question of the stream. No, but I don't know if the stream. Sometimes the owl seems to have fallen asleep or something. Oh. Mm -hmm. Who fell asleep? The owl. Yeah, because oh, they're okay. waking the dead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the owl. Um, Okay, so there's a lot of comments. Um, <laughs> Virginia Cotts asked, is Trump the only person who could win as a third party candidate? Yes, yes. Um, Jahan adds on YouTube, I believe Nixon was the first US president to visit the Soviet Union yes. soon after his yes. China visit. Um, Sorry. <laughs> uh, to engage in talks for detente with the Soviet leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, FDR had visited Soviet territory, but Nixon was the first since the start of the Cold War to also, um, but also the first to visit the capital of Moscow for talks and leading to SALT, uh, Salt One mm -hmm. and other arms control agreements. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Virginia and Yvonne had said that the other uh, reporter during the Watergate scandal was Carl Bernstein. Yeah, Bernstein. So Woodward and Bernstein. Um, Virginia Cox says, committee to reelect the president. She may be talking about Trump. I'm not sure. Mm -mm -mm. She's talking about uh, Nixon. Oh, oh okay. Um, Yvonne says, Musk has also released some Twitter files to at least one other journalist. Yeah, I think it was like Barry Weiss was another one. Oh, okay. And okay. then um, Lee Fang, who writes for The Intercept. And then another guy, Leighton, Leighton Woodhouse, mm -hmm. who's like an independent journalist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Virginia asks, Tony, I'm told we're not supposed to call it the Ukraine anymore, just Ukraine. But I don't know why, do you? <laughs> I, I, I think it's no. to make it seem more legitimate as a country rather than like yeah. as a region. You know, like the Donbass. That's Dombas what they say. <laughs> like, please help me with this. Man. Well, because I got into like an argument with like one of my Ukrainian American classmates Hi. about this because I called it the Ukraine in front of her, and then she like went like ape shit on me. Wow. So oh, yeah. well, she was like, "It's Ukraine." Yeah, because so, so she said that the the with the with, with the article the in front of it is an old Soviet term, uh, and. Uh, 
I mean, you can kind of guess where this is coming from. <laughs> she basically says that that characterization frames Ukraine as a region and as like a shadow in the yeah. larger, I mean, or as like a little guy in the in like a larger like Soviet or Russian shadow. And that the, it's, it's interesting because I think it's kind of similar to how like now the Western media is pushing to spell Kiev as Kiev. Oh boy, right? this is, yeah, ki yeah. Ki Ki something like that. Or like Lvov is Lviv. Um, so it's, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the thing behind it. It's probably just semantics at this point, but coming, coming behind it, I think is there are very specific ideological aims. Um, and then Stephen says, Harry Truman started the so-called security state mm -hmm. who, and his election was decided by a very narrow margin in a three-way three race. Truman right. was also the president um, during the Korean War. Um, yeah, just in the 1948 yeah. race. And this is what ultimately led to a serious split in the left mm -hmm. and McCarthyism. You had um, the Republican was, uh, who, who was, I forget his name, Dewey. Truman and Wallace, Henry right. Wallace. Right. Now, Henry Wallace was a part of FDR's cabinet, a very prominent leftist, um, a genuine leftist. Uh, and when FDR died, the question is uh, who, well, the vice president, who was his vice president? I forget. Who's vice? Uh, uh, FDR's vice Wasn't president. Was it Truman? Was it Truman? Oh, yes, this is yeah. right. No, let me get it right. The 1944 election, who would be FDR's running mate? Which would be an insurance policy when FD, if FDR died. He was a very weak, sick man at the time, running for his fourth time, fourth time for president. Um, and the debate was over Henry Wallace versus Truman. Truman, Henry Wallace, an intellectual, uh, party administrator. Truman was a cat that ran a hat store, haberdasher, and a bullshit artist, and a, uh, you know, whatever. And the weight of the establishment including the bankers and everything, went towards Truman. Had Wallace been the candidate, the vice president, in a lot of ways we could say that American history going forward would have been different. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, Pamir uh, is right. But in, in the 1944 election, there was a lot of pressure from the left, a lot of support from the left, that Henry Wallace run as a third party, you know? And he did with the support of, among other people, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and prominent Democrats, small d Democrats, and anti-Cold War people. Uh, and this is the final blow that drove Du Bois out of the NAACP for the second time. And 
the, Demo the NAACP then a lot becomes aligned to the Democratic Party establishment. Uh, I think that's, you know, but this is, it's, what Stephen is saying is very, very important. That moment, but Henry Wallace, with all the mass support of the left unions, I think, uh, but in the end, uh, the election go, and everybody thought that the Republican was going to win. Dewey was going to win. And so the newspapers had already printed headlines the day, be you know, the night before, Dewey wins or something like that. And it turns out Truman won. And, you know, in terms of foreign policy and McCarthyism, the rest is history, including the Korean War. Um. Yeah, just a few more comments. Virginia says, the ruling class is not a monolith. There are divergent interests. I think she may be talking about Elon Musk. Um, Todd Doherty says, the Scott Ritter banning, then unbanning, and then banning on Twitter, I think, is truly mind-boggling. Scott Ritter is like the... Oh, they banned him. Yeah, they banned him from Twitter, then they unbanned him, and then I guess they banned him again. Uh, Mr. Homebody, someone named Mr. Homebody on YouTube says... Uh, Ukrainian social media accounts also painted the fall of the Soviet Union as beneficial, despite the fact that they wouldn't exist without the USSR. Much love mm -hmm. from New York. There's no question. This is a question of, of what, um, what Anna was raising, her friend said. See, Ukraine as a socialist republic within this 15 uh, republic Soviet Union, you, and, and Putin is right about it, was literally created uh, by a political move on the part of the Bolsheviks. And it was a way, and, and you know, the interesting thing is a number of leaders of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, including, I think, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, were Ukrainians, you know, but it secured Ukraine against Polish, um, um, Ames, you know, and this was in 1922, I guess, around in that time. In other words, there were a lot of people, including Russia and Poland, who had claims on, on uh, Ukraine. I mean, really, out of this war now, the West versus Russia, out of this war, which I think the Russians are going to win, are winning, the, the question is, what will be left of Ukraine? And a week, the collapse of the Ukrainian state as we know it with this guy Zelensky, uh, will that then embolden Poland to make its age-old territorial claims upon whatever is left of Ukraine. Obviously, just on the Ukraine thing, Ukraine will no longer, after this is over, have an outlet to the sea. It will be landlocked. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It, it will, and, and hence, we're back <laughs> to 1922. Will the existence of the Ukraine be dependent 
upon Russia. Who can defend? Because, you know, Poland is a part of NATO. I mean, and, and the Germans and the French and the US, after this is over, are, are not going to be in a mood to defend Ukraine. So now we're back to Russia being the only power that will defend Ukraine, uh, which is a great irony of this whole situation. Okay. Just one last comment. Stephen Palmer says, there was an attempted coup Said it again. There was an attempted coup on FDR's administration early on, yeah. trying to use someone named Smedley as yeah, a, yeah, Smedley yeah. a general. Okay. As a leader, he exposed them on it, and it was buried big time. Yeah. Yeah, hold on one second. Um, where we, any, any other comments, questions? Smedley Butler went to my high school. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> a cool plotter. Uh -oh. <laughs> no, he's the one that exposed. He's, he exposed. Oh, he's the one that exposed. Okay, so it's the business plot. He broke the book that war is a racket. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Right, 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 right. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, should we begin the chapter, the general strike? <laughs> um, first, let me ask, is there anyone that wants to say anything to set it up, how we're approaching this? What do you mean? My reading? No, yeah, but the political, the oh. politics literally the politics of this chapter and why it it can be seen as the um uh, this uh apropos kathy's uh participation in the american historical associations the panel discussing black reconstruction this chapter could be the point that divides the house over how black reconstruction is received. Mm -hmm. I say that because I'm saying that uh, unless one is prepared to adopt a more revolutionary view along the lines and logic of the book itself, one would have to diminish this chapter. Uh, Okay, so this is ideologically, uh, along with the first chapter of Black Worker, this chapter then sets the stage for the rest of the book politically. You do what I'm saying? So it is a politically significant. Um, and um, Kathy, would you mind reading? Could, could you read the, uh, the first? Is that what you what an epithet? Yeah, whatever, you know. See, I don't have a good vocabulary also. So go ahead if you could start. Sure, sure, I can start. Everybody oh, sorry. 
Chapter four, the general strike, how the civil war meant emancipation and how the black worker won the war by a general strike, which transferred his labor from the Confederate planter to the Northern invader in whose army lines workers began to be organized as a new labor force. Could we just read that again? I don't know. <laughs> is just, is everybody have their, just everybody listen up to this. How the Civil War meant emancipation and how the black worker won the war by a general strike which transferred his labor from the Confederate planter to the Northern mm -hmm. invader, mm -hmm. in whose army lines workers began to be organized as a new labor force. Mm. I mean, that statement in and of itself is almost breathtaking. First of all, how, black, how the black worker won the war. You see how this is the, the central chapter ideologically how the he didn't say the black slave won how the black worker won the war and then he goes on and he said won the war by a general strike won the war by a general strike which transferred his labor from the Confederate planter to the Northern invader in whose army lines workers began to be organized as a new labor force. We could spend, I don't, this is so, uh, I mean, it's, Excuse the reference to atomic weapons, but I only mean it metaphorically. This is an atomic bomb in the middle of the fucking history. This is not just a narrative against the Dunning School that said that Reconstruction was shit because Black people were shit and yada, yada, yada. Okay, all right. That's an easy thing to take on. But here he is redefining the class struggle and the political, that the class struggle by definition is a political struggle. Even when the fucking leaders of the labor movement sell the fuck out, that's political. And he's, and hence began, in whose army line workers began to be organized as a new labor force. What he is saying from the enslaved proletariat to a free worker. Whoa. And here's where bourgeois law, bourgeois liberty, freedom to organize, legal rights as individuals, you know, blase, blase, blase. Hence the overturning of reconstruction was the overturning of this new labor force. Reconstruction not overturned the history of the working class in the United States is a different history. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I would argue unprecedented. 
in modern history. Not constrained, okay, we talked about aristocracy, the church, the king, whatever, whatever. A new labor force and a new democracy. I, I could say a lot of this is why the categories of knowledge. And if you can't deal with that part of it, you don't understand what the fuck he's saying here. So when Horn talked, it wasn't a general strike. It was a, a, a what do you call it? wildcat strike. Did you read the fucking thing that he says at the fucking beginning? Did it, did it mean anything? Now, uh, let me show you. <laughs> I mean, it's a. Do you see? Yeah. This is why Nuri went to cursing when we were talking about a woman that does not curse, at least to my knowledge. <laughs> Maybe others know her better. But I'm so, she said, What the F is this? How do you diminish this? Just this? Did you read that? Probably not. Okay, I'll, I'll shut my fucking mouth. Okay. Anybody want to say? The same thing, Michelle. Um, Danny, are we okay? Let's read. Yeah, let's read. Okay, let's read. Yeah, let's, read. Okay, let's, read. <laughs> <laughs> let's cut out the cursing and shit. <laughs> Would it help to just read and then we'll, or are there yes. certain passages? We can get to that. Yeah. Why don't we okay. just read and see? When Edward, Edwin Ruffin, white haired and mad, fired the first gun at Fort Sumter, he freed the slaves. It was the last thing he meant to do, but that was because he was so typically a Southern oligarch. He did not know the real world about him. He was provincial and lived apart on his plantation with his servants, his books, and his thoughts. Outside of agriculture, he jumped at conclusions instead of testing them by careful research. <laughs> test, test for my thoughts. <laughs> He knew, for instance, that the North would not fight. He knew that the Negroes would not revolt. And so war came. War is murder, force, anarchy, and death. Its end is evil, despite all incidental good. Neither North nor South had before 1861 the slightest intention of going to war. The thought was in many respects ridiculous. They were not prepared for war. The National Army was small poorly equipped and without experience. There was no file from which someone might draw plans of subjugation. When Northern armies entered the South, they became armies of emancipation. Mm. It was the last thing they planned to be. Mm. The North did not propose to attack property. It did not propose to free slaves. This was to be a white man's war to preserve the union and their union must be preserved. Nothing that concerned the amelioration of the Negro touched the heart of the mass of Americans, nor could the common run of men realize the political and economic cost of Negro slavery. When therefore the Southern radicals, backed by political or oligarchy and economic dictatorship in the most extreme form in which the world had seen for 500 years precipitated secession, that part of the North that opposed the plan had to hunt for a rallying slogan to unite the majority in the North and in the West, and if possible, bring the border states into an opposing phalanx. 
Freedom for its slaves furnished no such slogan. Not one-tenth of the northern white population would have fought for any such purpose. Free soil was a much stronger motive, but had no cogency in this contest because the free soilers did not dream of asking free soil in the South, since that involved the competition of slaves, or what seemed worse than that, of free Negroes. On the other hand, the tremendous economic ideal of keeping this great market for goods of the United States, together with all its possibilities of agriculture, manufacture, trade, and profit, appealed to both the West and the North, and what was then much more significant appeal to the border states. Okay, does everybody know what free, the Free Soil Movement was? Everybody know? Yeah, the, the Free Soil Movement, of which Lincoln was a leader of, and being from Illinois, which when he says the West, he's talking about what we would today call the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, the Free Soil Movement was a movement of farmers. You could call it a petty bourgeois movement because they did not want slave plantations to spread uh, to Kansas, for example, or to Illinois or uh, to Ohio, because uh, as was the case in the South, uh, plantations deprive uh, whites mm -hmm. of property. Right. And which was part of the explanation for the poor white, you know, and the, what they came to be called hillbillies or rednecks, you know, so they didn't want, so the free soil slogan was more appealing to the white population, many of whom would want to go west and get land, than was uh, the slogan ending slavery. The slogan was, to the flag we are pledged, all its foes we abhor, and we ate for the nigger, but we are for the war. Okay. The border states- Now everybody knows what the border states are. Delaware, Maryland, Tennessee, uh, maybe parts of Arkansas. By this time, Kansas, which had gone through an earlier form of what be, would be the Civil War, had already fought and driven the slave owners out. Uh, John Brown, the great abolitionist, begins his career as, a, as an abolitionist freedom fighter in Kansas. Kansas became known as Bloody Kansas. Mm -hmm. but, the border states wanted the cotton belt in the Union so that they could sell it their surplus slaves, but they also wanted to be in the same Union with the North and the West, yeah. where the profit of trade was large and increasing. The duty then of saving the Union became the great, great rallying cry of a war, which for a long time made the border states hesitate and confine secession to the far South. And yet, they all knew that the only thing that threatened the Union was slavery and the only remedy was abolition. If now the far South had had trained and astute leadership, a compromise could have been made, which so far as slavery was concerned, would have held the abnormal political power of the South intact, made the slave system impregnable for generations, and even given slavery practical rights throughout the nation. 
both North and South ignored in differing degrees the interests of the laboring classes. The North expected patriotism and union to make white labor fight. The South expected all white men to defend the slaveholders' property. Both North and South expected at most a sharp, quick fight and victory. More probably the South expected to secede peacefully and then outside the union to impose terms which would include national recognition of slavery new slave territory and new chief slaves. The North expected that after a threat and demonstration to appease its quote, honor, unquote, the South would return with the right of slave property recognized and protected, but geographically limited. Does everybody see the compromise, to the, one, the South wanted a compromise where slavery would be protected nationally, right? Mm -hmm. Which meant the spread of slavery. The North wanted a compromise where the South would come back into the Union, but slavery would have been limited to the places where it already existed pretty much. Which brings into question the question of Texas, which we won't get into yet. You know? <laughs> Both sections ignored the Negro. To the Northern masses, the Negro was a curiosity, a subhuman minstrel, willingly and naturally a slave and therefore and there and treated as well as he deserved to be he had not sense enough to revolt and help northern armies even if northern armies were trying to emancipate him which they were not the north shrank at the very thought of encouraging servile insurrection against the whites above all it did not propose to interfere with property negroes on the whole were considered cowards and inferior beings whose very presence in america was unfortunate the abolitionists, it was true, expected action on the part of the Negro, but how much they could not say. Only John Brown knew just how revolt had come and would come, and he was dead. He was dead, mm. you know, executed by mm. 1859. Thus, the Negro himself was not seriously considered by the majority of men, North or South. And yet from the very beginning, the Negro occupied the center of the stage because of very simple physical reasons. The war was in the South, and in the South were 3,953,740 black slaves, and there were 261,918 free Negroes. What was to be the relation of this mass of workers to the war? What did the war mean to the Negroes, and what did the Negroes mean to the war? <laughs> These are two theories, both rather over-elaborated, the one that Negroes did nothing but faithfully serve his master until emancipation was thrust upon him. The other that the Negro immediately, just as quickly, the presence of the Northern soldiers made possible, left Serfden and took his stand with the army of freedom. It must be borne in mind that nine-tenths of the four million black slaves could neither read nor write and that overwhelming majority of them were isolated on country plantations. Any mass movement under such circumstances must materialize slowly and painfully. Mm -hmm. What the Negro did was to wait, look, and listen, and try to see where his interests lay. This is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Could not read or write, but understood where their interests lay. Isn't that something? Could not read or write, but understood they had an interest 
which was neither reflected by the northern armies nor the southern slave owners. This is a profound statement because, okay, uh, let me shut up. Forgive me. <laughs> I don't want to talk to there was no use in seeking refuge in an army, which was not an army of freedom. And there was no sense in revolting against our masters who were conquering the world. As soon, however, it became clear that the Union armies would not or could not return fugitive slaves and that the masters with all their fume and fury were uncertain of victory, the slave entered upon a general strike against slavery by the same methods that he had used during the period of the fugitive slave. Can I just say something? You know, remember, although a proletariat and workers, they were property. And so in the early days of the war, the if the slaves ran away from the plantation, they would re, to the Union Army, they would be returned to the plantation because the rules of the war at that time was not were not to uh, take the property of the slave owners. So they were fighting the war based upon, we only want you to come back into the union. We don't want to take your property, be it the, you know, the, the land or the slaves. He ran away to the first place of safety and offered his services to the federal army so that in this way, it was really true that he served his former master and served the emancipating army. It was also true that this withdrawal and with bestowal of labor decided the war. The South counted on Negroes as laborers to raise food and money crops for civilians and for the army and even in a crisis to be used for military purposes. Slave revolt was an ever-present risk, but there was no reason to think that, this, that a short war with the North would greatly increase this danger. Publicly, the South repudiated the thought of its slaves even wanting to be rescued. The New Orleans Crescent showed, quote, the absurdity of the assertion of a general stampede of our Negroes, end quote. The London Dispatch was convinced that Negroes did not want to be free, quote. As for the slaves themselves, crushed by the wrongs of Dred Scott and Uncle Tom, most provoking, they cannot be brought to burn with revenge. Okay, yes. everybody knows what he said when he says the Dred Scott decision, that was a struggle over. If a slave reached a non-slave state, should he or she be returned to the slave state? In other words, could a slave not be a free person even in a state where there was no slavery? And what the Dred Scott decision said in 1857 was that a black, the, Tony said, the, the head of the Supreme Court, a black man has no rights, a white man need respect, which means that a black man who was enslaved was always the property of a slave owner. Because um, I have a question, apropos your previous point. Um, because the, uh, he's saying that he, 
The slave entered upon a general strike against slavery by the same methods that he had used during the period of the fugitive slave. Okay, yes, yes. Uh, where the struggle over fugitive slave rights. You see, let me just make that clear. This is very, very important because slaves are always trying to flee the plantation. You know what I'm saying? And they saw their freedom in getting to a state that's yeah. yeah that they where there was not slavery yeah. and where there were free negroes who could yeah. protect them yes so uh, that was and so what du bois is referencing is that until the dred scott decision black folk were fleeing so so let me just this is very important because what du bois is also also talking about is capacity yes consciousness interest, recognizing one's interest, but he is also saying that what culminates in a general strike had already been happening in a microcosmic way during the struggle over the fugitive slave laws, right. where different states would have different laws about what to do with, quote, fugitive slaves or slaves that, you know, left the plantation. Were they still property? Which meant that the slave owner could come, let's say, to Philadelphia and, and you know, send her agents or, you know, like thugs to say, oh, you know, um, Sade, you're the slave of so We're taking you back down there. Right. That's what, you know, Toni Morrison's book, Beloved, yeah. that's what that's about. Yeah. And um, uh, Setha, kills her children, this is an actual story, in or in, around Cincinnati, kills them rather than have them taken back to, to the slave thing. Yeah. And she said, I'd rather have you dead than slaves. And she was, just, just a small thing about this, since a slave was property, it was not considered a murder for her to kill her children. And the true story, this is a true story the novel is based upon. And as a consequence, uh, Setha in the novel lived the rest of her life haunted by the child that she killed. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make that point, yeah. Okay, my stomach. But uh, yes, it's, it's fine, just, yeah. no, because it's an example of like the proletariat, like in protest, like in yes. um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. the democratic, like struggling towards the democratic um, or democracy. Um, because these are one of those like concrete, um, concrete uh, realizations of like. Okay, well, up until there is a decision by the Supreme Court. Yeah, which one, Dred uh, Scott? Now? Yeah, you mm -hmm. saw him talking about the fugitive slave mm -hmm. running away to the mm -hmm. state for freedom mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that as a part of like the democratic struggle. But also, what this made me think about was the, I guess, the dynamics, if you will, of the um, of the black proletariat or the. Because we have two different things we're dealing with, like the in, um, enslaved African, and then it's becoming a black proletariat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the enslaved African also, it's property, 
Um, it's a slave and a worker. Yes. And then, you know, <laughs> as a proletariat, I think, you know, there's other dynamics to it. But I just was thinking about those things. No, I, I think, I think, but see, it's it's back to your point about philosophy mm-hmm. and the category. Mm-hmm. See, the category slave, which is an ancient institution, people argue that all the time. But Du Bois substitutes the category worker. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? That move already creates a certain logic to the text and to the analysis. See, like he's saying, the North and the South looked upon the Negro as a slave by nature, you know, as a slave. That slavery was not unnatural. So if you go to make a natural law argument, right? they are natural. This is the the natural state for a black person to be a slave, but as a worker. So you just drop like they, like that song said, I think it's by the Gap Band. You dropped the bomb on me, yeah, <laughs> baby, baby. Mm-hmm. You dropped the bomb on me. You know, it's a bomb. You dropped the bomb, and the bomb is so deep. I mean, you could go to a hundred conferences on Black Reconstruction, and they never get this straight. They be if you if you feel what I'm saying, I don't want to start cursing, but they fuck up because the historians don't know philosophy and the philosophers don't know history. So you get people talking about shit they're ill-equipped to talk about. But also, no, but also <laughs> in a part of the epitaph or whatever in the beginning, like the how the black worker won the war by general strike, which transferred his labor from the Confederate planter to the Northern invaders. Right. So it's not like the planters gave up the slaves to the North and no, they were like, thank no. you. For this labor force, no. but like there was a literal um, transition or redefinition or like a remolding of the state around the movements that the labor force or the black proletariat were making, um, you know, historically. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's breathtaking. It is so counter to all sides in the discussion of American democracy. This is so unique. I mean, in every dimension, so unique as to make it either it, see, you can't, here's the thing with Du Bois. You debate Du Bois by ignoring Du Bois. Yeah, right. right. That's a debate, that's a discussion about, well, we're, or if you if you talk about him, you talk about it like Henry. If you get that thing, Henry Louis Gates, like he's like he's writing a script for some bullshit PBS documentary about Reconstruction. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and it's ha, ha, all that laughing and bullshit. The fact of the matter, all of American social thinking is turned around with this, which then raises the question that, that Jerry, that you just put on the table, are we looking at a dialectic or something closer to a trialectic? Because the dynamic agency of class are the African proletariat. 
not in a uh, a black separatist, mm -hmm. i.e. Garveyite way, mm -hmm. they would be how? Oh yeah, yeah. It shows that we should be. No, it didn't show that. He said a new labor movement. He didn't say move, but you know what I'm saying. This is totally dismissed. Which, which is, I, I think more about Nuri these days. I can't, uh, you know, which is infuriating. At least be honest about what we have here and the absolute genius of this. Everything is rethought now. But I'll, I'll shut my mouth, please. Can you continue? Yes. Is there anything? Another note. Um, they obstinately refuse to run away to liberty, outrage, and starvation. They work in the fields as usual when the planter and overseer are away and only the white women are left at home. End quote. Early in the war, the South had made careful calculation of the military value of slaves. The Alabama advertiser in 1861 discuss the slaves. What, what page are you? I, I'm, I'm at 58. 58. Oh, we're, yeah, we were just. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, the Alabama advertiser in 1861 discussed the slaves as a military element in the South. It said that, quote, the total white population of the 11 states now compromising, uh, comprising the Confederacy is 5 million and therefore, to fill up the ranks of the proposed army, 60,000, about 10% of the entire white population yeah, would be required. Proposed up 600,000, by the way. That's 60. Say, yeah. You're right. 600,000. In any other country than our own, such a draft could not be met, but the southern states can furnish that number of men and still not leave the material interests of the country in a suffering condition. And Everybody knows what this that those slaves would continue. The slaves would be a part of the Confederate military effort by producing export commodities and food. Now, where would cotton be exported to? To England, which was in Horn's account, the abolitionist force during the American Revolution. So the the British Crown went from an abolitionist force in 1776 to a pro-slave force in 1861. And this was the politics of the class struggle in England, where Marx and his followers played a huge role. And Marx was in essence saying what Du Bois is saying. When he said, labor in the white skin cannot flee it, free itself as long as labor in the black skin is branded. Branded meaning enslaved. And thus, it is in the interest of the British working class to oppose the British ruling class siding with the slave owners. Oh, by the way, there was a, another tri 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 triad here. Slave, the, the, the US South, British manufacturer, 
Indian colonized India. The, the editor with fatuous faith did not for a moment contemplate any mass movement against the program on the part of the slaves. Quote, those who are incapacitated for bearing arms can see, oversee the plantations and the Negroes can go on undisturbed in their usual labors. Mm -hmm. In the North, the case is different. The men who join the army of subjugation are the laborers, the producers, and the factory operatives. Nearly every man from that section, especially those from the rural districts, leaves some branch of industry to suffer during his absence. The institution of slavery in the South alone enables her to place in the field a force much larger in proportion to her white population than the North or indeed any other any country which is dependent entirely on free labor. Mm. The institution is a tower of strength to the South, particularly at this present crisis, and our enemies will likely will be likely to find that the, quote, moral cancer about which their orators are so fond of creating is really one of the most effective weapons employed against the Union by the South. Do you, see, you see what he's saying? Mm -hmm. The fact that we have an enslaved working class is an advantage in a war with the North where the South, even counting the slaves, has only half the population of the North. So, a, and this, this is really advanced strategic thinking because war is not just armies. War is production, which we're found finding out in Ukraine, by the way. <laughs> It's production. So, uh, in so this guy's saying in war conditions, we have a more efficient war production system, even a better system for uh, uh, making money in trade with England. You see what I'm saying? The North has to raise an army from its working class and farming communities which means then that the North would have to look elsewhere for the things that would be lacking in production. Yeah, sorry. Bye-bye, Blaze. Soon the South of necessity was moving out beyond this plan. It was no longer simply a question of using the Negroes at home on the plantation to raise food, they could even be of more immediate use as military labor to throw up breastworks, transport and prepare food and act as service in camp. You see it? Without being paid. <laughs> in the Charleston Courier of November 22, able-bodied hands were asked to be sent by their masters to work upon the defenses. Quote, they would be fed and properly cared for, end quote. In 1862, in Charleston, after a proclamation of martial law, the governor and council authorized the procuring of Negro slaves, either by the planter's consent or by impressment, quote, to work on the fortifications and defenses of Charleston Harbor, end quote. In Mississippi in 1862, permission was granted the governor um, to impress slaves to work in New Iberia for salt, which was becoming the Confederacy's most pressing necessity. <laughs> In Texas, a thousand Negroes were offered by planters to work on the public defenses. By 1864, the matter had passed beyond the demand for slaves as military laborers and had come to place where come to the place where the South was seriously considering 
and openly demanding the use of Negroes as soldiers. Distinctly mm. and inevitably, the rigor of the slave system in the South softened as war proceeded. Slavery showed in, in many, if not all respects, its best side. The harshness and cruelty, in part, had to disappear since they were left on plantations, mainly women and children, with only a few men, and there was a certain feeling and apprehension in the air on the part of the whites, which had, which had led them to capitalize on all the friendship and <laughs> kindness which had existed between them and the whites. No race could have responded to this so quickly and thoroughly as the Negroes. They felt pity and responsibility and also a certain new undercurrent of independence. Negroes were still being sold rather ostentatiously in Charleston and New Orleans, but the long lines of Virginia Negroes were not marching to the Southwest. Mm. In a certain sense, after a few first months, uh, everyone knew that slavery was done mm. with, that no matter who won, the condition of the slave could never be the same mm. after this disaster of war. And it was, perhaps, these considerations more than anything else that held the poised arm of the black man, for no one knew better than the South what a Negro crazed with cruelty and oppression and beaten back to the last stand could do to his oppressor. Whoa, which, you see, see what Du Bois is just saying, and this is always a situation, the blacks could either show kindness towards the white slave owners in their time of trouble, crisis, or they could take the opportunity mm -hmm. to exact revenge. Right. Mm -hmm. And the slave owners, the whites, North and South, by the way, mm -hmm. didn't know what way the go. Negro would go. Mm -hmm. Isn't that scary? Uh, <laughs> say that again. Isn't that scary? Yeah, well, that, well, can you imagine being a slave owner? I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. You're just sitting there terribly. But see, here Du Bois, again, capacity, interest, consciousness, you know? Mm -hmm. And the other thing I just want to say here, the South and slave owners had a generally a collective mm -hmm. response to their crisis and need for labor and to the Negro. Mm -hmm. Why then would it be so difficult to deduce that the slaves saw a collective interest as well, maybe not as clearly as the slave owners, but saw it. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah. The collective interest being? Uh, as a group. See everybody, you know, because the slaves were isolated on plantations. Yeah, Huh? Yeah, I I know what you mean by as as a group of, but I just didn't know what interest it would have been. It would have been the interest being what? What is the interest? Freedom. Okay. Mm. See, because that's what the general strike was—a collective blow for freedom. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? A collective blow. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, go ahead, AJ. Um, <clears throat> this is not related, but um. I'm was well, kind of related. I'm reading a book from Frederick, Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. um, and so far, what I've like, read about it, it's kind of 
like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like in terms of like how the slave owners treated their slaves and stuff, and mm-hmm. not seeing them as a person, but it's like just property. Yeah. And whenever like even like the smallest like disobedient action, like they were oh, just yeah. get whipped. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Stuff. Oh yeah. But see, this is very important. See. Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. became, uh, well, put it this way, and Winston gets this. Way. Frederick Douglass was like a Lenin mm-hmm. of the anti-slavery yes. struggle. You know what I'm saying? In other words, he was one who saw the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Everybody that was a slave, just like today, everybody doesn't see all of it. Yeah. But those geniuses, those freedom fighters. And that's what Frederick Douglass, you know, he saw his condition and he saw the conditions of others. Now he's in Maryland. That ain't the hardest place. Yeah. As like South Carolina and Louisiana and them spots. But if he saw it, then there were others. This is what makes more plausible the concept. Like I, there was one thing I read last night, um, like, how I think one of his family members, he like he didn't get to see them. His and, mother. Like his mother, and he didn't get to see um her sick when she was sick and when yes. she died her Oh yes, oh yes. The cruelty of it. The cruelty of it. And that's what Du Bois is also saying. And he says this throughout his work. Almost a transcendent humanity among the slaves, among black folk. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else, if the shoe were on the other foot, few people would have treated Negroes the way Negroes treated their oppressors, so to speak. You know, and that's another point that Du Bois continues to make the moral humanistic capacity. Yeah, you're right, AJ. And it relates directly to what we're talking about. You didn't take us off point. The Southerners, therefore, were careful. Those who had been kind to their slaves assured them of the bad character of the Yankee and of their own good intentions. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, while the Negroes knew that they were abolitionists in the North, they did not know their growth, their power, or their intentions, and they did hear on every side that the South was overwhelmingly victorious on the battlefield. On the other hand, some of the Negroes sensed what was beginning to happen. Negroes of the cities, the Negroes who were being hired out, the Negroes of intelligence who could read and write, all began carefully to watch the unfolding of the situation. Could we just read that again? See, yeah. this is very important. See, see, the assumption of most writers is that the Negroes were dumb. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now, remember, Du Bois said in the population of 4 million enslaved Africans, there were 250,000 in the South, free Negroes. Mm -hmm. Now we don't know what role the free Negroes played in organizing and spreading information among the slaves. You see what I'm saying? But we do know that they existed. Mm -hmm. But I'll just say it. On the other hand, some of the Negroes sensed what was beginning to happen. The Negroes of the cities, the Negroes who were being hired out, and the Negroes of intelligence who could read and write, all began carefully 
to watch the unfolding of the situation. At the first gun of Sumter, the black mass began not to move, but to heave with nervous tension and watch, watchful waiting. Even before war was declared, a movement began across the border. Just before the war, large numbers of fugitive slaves and free Negroes rushed into the North. It was estimated that 2,000 left North Carolina alone because of rumors of war. When W.T. Sherman occupied Port Royal in October 1861, he had no idea that he was beginning emancipation at one of its strategic points. <laughs> On the contrary, yes, he was very yes. polite and said that he had no intention of interfering with slaves. In the same way, Major General Dix, on seizing two counties of Virginia, was careful to order that slavery was not to be interfered with or slaves to be received into the line. Burnside went further, and as he went, as he brought his Rhode Island regiment through Baltimore in June, he courteously returned two Negroes who tried to run away with him. They were, quote, supposed to be slaves, end quote, although they may have been free Negroes. <laughs> <laughs> On the 4th of July, Colonel Pryor of Ohio delivered an address to the people of Virginia in which he repudiated the accusation that the Northern Army were abolitionists. Quote, I desire to assure you that the relation of master and servant, as recognized in your state, shall be respected. Your authority over that species of property shall not in the least be interfered with. To this end, species of property. Mm -hmm. To this end, I assure you that those under my command have pre preemptory orders to take up and hold any Negroes found running about the camp <laughs> without passes from their masters. <laughs> Hollock in Missouri in 1862 refused to let fugitive slaves enter his lines. Burnside, Buell, Hooker, Thomas Williams, and McClellan himself all warned their soldiers against receiving slaves, and most of them permitted masters to come forward and remove slaves found within the lines. The constant charge. See, this, this, see, if Horn wants to make the argument of a wildcat, see, this was more the wildcat strike, which is a pre. Be you know only to be realized after 1862, 18 with the Emancipation Proclamation into a general dynamic. You see, what I'm saying. Wait, what is the difference between wildcat and journalist? Uh, a wildcat, first of all, of of short duration, yeah. usually lesser consequences. Uh, a wildcat can last a couple days, usually. Uh, and smaller numbers. You know, wildcat would be a couple of plantations, let us say, in Virginia. Isn't it more improvised as well? Like more spontaneous? You could say more spontaneous. The other thing is the quality of the leadership. Right. And when he makes, when Du Bois makes the claim of a general strike, I don't know whether, I, I don't remember whether he points, there, he, he's making the point, though, that there were potential leaders already. They were free Negroes. They were people who were sold, I mean, or, or rented out, let us say, to work in a city, in a town, on urban stuff. So there, there were these networks 
of, as he says, more intelligent people who were the potential leaders of a more general strike. And when he talks about 2,000 people in North Carolina leaving the plantations and then forced back, and this is, by the way, they were abide, the Union Army was abiding by the Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm. uh, he, when they were driven back, that itself was an experience that raises their consciousness. So they're driven back, not to be happy on the plantation, but to prepare for something bigger. This is the drama that he is, and it takes a, a lot of literary skill to do what he's doing here. Uh, and it takes a lot of literary foolishness not to see what he's doing here. But I'll see you. The constant charge of Southern newspapers, Southern politicians, and their Northern sympathizers that the war was an abolition war met with constant and indignant denial. Loyal newspapers, orators, and preachers, with few exceptions, while advocating stringent measures for putting down the rebellion, carefully disclaimed any uh, intention of disturbing the, quote, peculiar institution of the South. Now, when, he's, when the rebellion that he's talking about here is the rebellion of the South against the North. The Secretary of State informed foreign governments through our ministers abroad that this was not our purpose. President Lincoln, in its earliest me earlier messages, substantially reiterated the statement. Leading generals on entering Southern territory issued proclamations to the same effect. One even promised to put down any slave insurrection, quote, with an iron hand, end quote, while others took vigorous measures to send back the fugitives who sought refuge within their lines. Okay, now this is, these were Union generals saying they will put down any slave insurrection. The Union Army now, okay. Quote, in the early years of the war, if accounts do not err, during the entire period McClellan had commanded the Army of the Potomac, John Brown's body was a forbidden heir among the regimental bands. The singing of John Brown's. Mm -hmm. The Hutchinsons were driven from Union camps for singing abolition songs. Mm -hmm. And insofar as the Northern Army interested itself at all in the slavery question, it was by the use of force to return to their Southern masters, fugitives seeking shelter in the Union lines. While information they possessed, especially respecting the roads and means of communication, should have been of inestimable service to the Federals, they were not to be employed as laborers or armed as soldiers. The North avoided the appearance of a desire to raise Negroes from the plane of chattels to the rank of human beings, end quote. By the way, the Hutchinsons, you know, you've heard of the, the, the women's group called the uh, Emotions. Mm. The name is Hutchinson. Oh. So I just want to break that up. What do you mean the name is Hutchinson? That's her last name, okay. the Hutchinson cool. sisters. <laughs> the Emotions. Behold. <laughs> Don't ask my neighbor, you know. <laughs> Here was no bid for the cooperation of either slaves or free Negroes. In the North, Negroes were not allowed to enlist and often refused with indignation. Quote, the weakness of the South temporarily became her strength 
her servile population, repulsed by northern pro-slavery sentiment, remained at home engaged in agriculture, thus releasing her entire white population for active service in the field. While on the other hand, the military resources of the North were necessarily diminished by the demands of labor." It was as Frederick Douglass said in Boston in 1865 that the Civil War was begun, quote, in the interest of slavery on both sides. The South was fighting to take slavery out of the Union, and the North was fighting to keep it in the Union. <laughs> the South fighting to get it beyond the limits of the United States Constitution, and the North fighting for the old guarantees, both despising the Negro, both insulting the Negro, end quote. You, everybody did what Frederick Douglass was saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so therefore, the North and the South could never resolve the contradiction yes. of the war. Mm -hmm. It would take the Negro. Mm -hmm. It was therefore at first by no means clear to most of the four million Negroes in slavery what this war might mean to them. They crouched consciously and moved silently, listening hoping and hesitating. Just uh, to mm. crouched consciously. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Crouched consciously. It's almost like a contradiction. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> the position of the Negro especially at this point where both sides right. were fighting to preserve slavery, mm -hmm. uh, where the contradiction between them had not reached the point of an existential either or thing, mm -hmm. where the Negro would decide, could decide at all. Okay, maybe it's no, not. But this well, is why it, does it have to reach an existential point to have a conscious, like, one decision being made. This is interesting. I, I think, now here's my own interpretation. Um, it's like he says the whole thing, and move silently, listening. Not, not mm -hmm. see the thing is moving silently. Uh, you know, I'm whispering mm -hmm. to her. Or I'm not letting any I'm side know what mm -hmm. I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm acting like, oh, I'm still just happy yeah. on the plantation yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then, then he adds, hoping and hesitating. Yeah. We put all of those. If he, this, I mean, it's a beautiful painting. But, oh, God, I'm sorry. And what I've been noticing throughout us reading. A painting that hasn't yet been painted. No, but go ahead. I I'm you. sorry. I already got you on that. Okay. But, um, uh, yeah, as we've been reading the beginning of this chapter, I've been noticing how, uh, the boys like hints at these developments of yes, things. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, not very in quantitative, but just in different qualitative um, literary. Yeah. Um, you you got it exactly right. Oh, go, go ahead, Well, it actually reminds me of Baldwin's literature, too. Because <laughs> I remember even when I was in like undergrad and, have, and analyzing some of Baldwin's novels, one of the common 
like devices he uses is this quality of like people watching, especially black mm. black folk both watching yeah, each other, but looking and watching at like society yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And that's something he he'll say like, oh, this person was watching this person. This mm. person was watching this unfold. Mm. And I think that it's part of mm. it's yeah. you even can trace it from this, but it's also part of what Baldwin's assertion, which is that black people know white people better than white people know themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even when you have, you don't have, you don't have the ability to write, the ability to read, still there's the quality mm -hmm. of what the white planter had never mm -hmm. estimated, which was black people's even ability to like watch what was happening. Mm -hmm. That brings up a point. I was talking to Shade about this in the car when we was, when she dropped me off at work last week, because we were, I was thinking about um, how, or like we were talking about how white people don't rem or want to use their history. Yeah. Um, and it's a similar point that you're making about watching. When you look at something or a situation or a person, um, you're like, I wouldn't do that. Or like, I, you know, there's a situation that unfolds and you're like, this is crazy. And you learn something from it. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of, this is that's that's why uh, it's interesting what you say about you know how could they crouch consciously um, because, because it's just like so okay yes their position might be um bad or not advantageous okay. but um it's at a particular point um it's at the the particularity of their position Absolutely. is actually their interest in what they can ask yes. or what black people could do or use anyway. Um, but yeah. But th this is very interesting. And, uh, you know, first of all, you know, their consciousness was intact. They were conscious. Yeah. But this idea of watching, yeah. you know, and it is like Jerry said, it's in Baldwin. It is a feature mm -hmm. of black behavior, this watching. You know, I know myself, I get impatient. Why don't we do so? Why don't, can't we see that Obama ain't worth shit? Can't we see that Biden is a fraud? You know what I'm saying? You want something from me. Objectively, you would say, we should be in, in, up, in rage and in an uproar. But see this thing, and Du Bois captured it watching, waiting, yeah. as he, this, it's, that's a, also, move, moving silently, mm -hmm. listening, hoping, and hesitating. Mm -hmm. And let me just say this. So I mean, first of all, all of this together, don't, first, why did he put hesitating last, mm -hmm. move silently, listening, hoping, and hesitating? Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? It's it's first. Let me just say this. No, first of all, from a liter, it's very poetic. That's what a poet, way a poet mm -hmm. would do it. You know what I'm saying? But okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, no, Sarah. I'm I, sorry. I'm only bursting because it's like okay, because it's this whole thing about the dynamics of the proletariat, or like mm -hmm. if you want to talk about it in this way. Um, and why is it that um, the boys can make us see the human 
everything. Yeah, right. Interesting. Um, <laughs> that's right. But that's also a part of how. To see the human. Yeah, how part that black construction is a work of philosophy because yeah, of the yeah, 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 story. Yeah. This is um Because what I'm thinking about, why is a story being told? And how is it working like a story? And how can I see it in my mind? Um, but, but it's also, it, this is a historical, you, you can argue it. You can argue against it historically. You can say like maybe there's some facts that are wrong, right, and right. so we can dismiss it. Right. Or you can argue against it maybe like um, <laughs> solely in ideological or practical yeah. Marxist terms. But that's not exactly it either. As in like you can't exactly yeah. argue against it because that's not even what it is yeah. anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing you can't do, you can't accuse it of exaggeration. No. It is not an exaggeration. It is a balanced look. And it, this, I, but I'm but sorry. You, <laughs> you can't bind it down. Can't bind. You can't, you can't only limit it to like, and to a Marxist term or whatever, because that's not, what like because okay if i read that's that's very important you know what i'm saying but just just on that point why can't you exactly why couldn't he just do a marxist analysis well because marxism has never had to deal with this type of existential situation. Yeah, because it's about the human development, the human absolutely, freedom. Absolutely, Me, absolutely. you, anybody striving yes, towards freedom, yes. that's what he's talking and about. This is, Defending humanity, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's right, that's right. And this, so what is the human? Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I'm saying like, what is the human? Because see, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. He, who has ever had to write in this way Mm-hmm. about a group whose humanity right. was widely mm-hmm. attacked. And that's the essential, uh, I guess, yeah, that's the essential yes. quality to how America could even reach a democracy is if, um, is if, the, if the majority of people, uh, the people in this country are actually human instead of property or, you know, just workers as such. You know what I mean? I understand completely what you're saying. And and I would say, and keep in building on what you're saying, the very thing that 20th century existential philosophers were trying to achieve in their philosophy, i.e. the centralization of human freedom, frankly, in the abstract, could not be realized philosophically because there was no connection to the concrete historical, which Du Bois does and hence makes a perfect existential argument in ways that existential philosophers never fucking could. Because there is, see to deal with the, as you say, to make a humanistic argument that is not an abstract universal, you have to deal with a 
concrete that is not human. Does that mean, I don't know what that In other words, Du Bois is making an argument, an existential argument for humanity by looking at a group who were not seen as human and were treated as though they were not human. Yeah, my mind is on another point. Okay, go ahead. No, 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 I finished what I was saying. No, because I'm really thinking about the trialectic, like what? No, I'm sorry. No, that's I mean. But because it's um, interesting to me. That's a lot. I guess because it's like dialectics have to do with like two things happening at the same time. Right. Really. The unity of opposites. Yeah, the unity of opposites. um, And how you kind of need both to come to a conclusion. But it's interesting because the thing is that. This is why you need the concrete. Because you're absolutely right. There are situations where a dialectic unity of opposites is perfect for, fits perfectly. But if you could, I don't see how you could make the argument here using twos. There has to be threes at least, but certainly three. And and this, and I I just, I say this, this then forces the philosopher, in this case, Du Bois, the logician, to argue from the empirical, the actual, rather than the abstract. Of course, yeah. And in making, and and then in making that argument, Mm -hmm. the logical argument, that it has to be more than twos, he also has to argue that it is that because the critical side, the strategic side, the African has been dehumanized. So then you have to fold into a logical argument an existential mm. argument. And you have to make, you know, you can't make a logical argument without the existential argument, nor in this Du Boisian sense, can you make the existential argument without, without the logical, yeah. which I would call the logical historical argument. Mm-hmm. And if, But not to be too like in the air, but I do think that in this- I need your help, Danny. Wake up, brother. We need to hear you, man. (laughs) You okay? You sure? But um, what's interesting though, is that throughout this entire text of Black Reconstruction, he's constantly saying something about like the now. Like he's always like, well, there's a precedent to this. There's an example of the planted class. It, I mean, it, um, it disappeared, which says things about society or the way that things could go for the reader, say me, today. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, meaning like, oh, I can look at the ruling class and I can be like, oh, you guys aren't here forever. Um, for instance, um, but even even because okay, it's interesting to me. Last couple of weeks that you mentioned that Gerald Horner, somebody mentioned the propaganda of history as being like the most important 
chapter. No, uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates. Henry Louis Gates. And I was like, well, you kind of have to get to that chapter you first. Yeah. You can't just like jump to the chapter. Right. But also, right. but also that means that Du Bois is coming to a head with with the propaganda history um, or with that chapter at the end, he's saying something. But, you know, similar to how he is writing his chapter and how we're seeing it unfold or like seeing how the story unfolds in this particular chapter here, which is also involved in like 10 other chapters of this book. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, yes, a, com as a complete intellectual work. Right. A complete work mm -hmm. intellectually. Mm -hmm. You know, this, and that I'm thinking so much about Nuri, you know, I curse, she doesn't. But then to see such a complete work, such a a magnificent intellectual work be reduced in the ways mm -hmm. that it has been. I would like, you know, you know, I'm you know, it is also, besides being a complete intellectual work, I would even call it a complete work of art. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because the poetry of it, the literary uh, dimensions of it, um, yeah, yeah. I'll, but anyway, just the thing about the three. In I the think Richard Wagnerian sense of a complete work of art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, Wagner like the German, yeah. the opera. The opera, opera. He considered opera a complete work of art. <laughs> but um, no, but yeah, just in terms of threes, I just think that um, maybe this is too much. But I would say that like time is definitely important. That's what I meant by like, so that time is definitely important. Yeah, just explain what that's you mean. what I meant by the now is uh, you know, because it's like uh, abstract and concrete, but then there's the, the then there's like another dimension to it. You Go know, keep going. What like is the four dimension of well, what does both mean the past and the present you know the uh oh what is being studied and what is to come um but like what i'm saying is like okay there is the present concrete and then there's the historical and you know how you get there but then there's also what <laughs> you know what i mean like there's gonna be a future from that particular present so that's why i think that there's threes but um yeah. Go ahead, man. I think just oh, mercy. building on this, on me, like, I feel like I'm just starting to understand what it means to view this as a work of philosophy because I read that, um, like, I read the, what was it, the analytic philosophy article that mm -hmm. you shared from Jacobin, and even, oh, yes. like, even the example of someone like Bertrand Russell, who's, like, he starts out with the intent of creating like a new logical philosophy, like philosophical system. But like what Du Bois is doing, it's almost like he starts out with certain assumptions, which is basically like he assumes the humanity of black people. But it's like it's like through it's like through this book, he's like looking for the human. And it's like through that, it's like he's both doing like the inductive but also the deductive thing mm -hmm. where it's like he's moving it's like he's looking for the human and then it's like what he finds it's almost like he's he's both creating but also he's trying to make sense of the creation of like almost like a new philosophy through that like i, I don't know i'm still trying to make sense of it but it it's makes like, all the sense, yeah, sense. given but, what he what du bois himself <laughs> has said yeah. when he was told 
at Harvard when William James's closest mm -hmm. friend and mentor at Harvard said, right. well, don't go into philosophy because no, you can't make yeah. a living with it. Right. Du Bois said, I decided then to unite philosophy yeah. and history yeah. to produce sociology. Yeah, he called it a science of human and called sociology the science of human action, mm. not the science of human misery, by the way. <laughs> you know? But action. But this so this cool. linking of philosophy and history. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's always interested in philosophy. You know, he's never, you mentioned Bertrand Russell, he abhorred American, Anglo-American philosophy mm -hmm. in its pragma pragmatist form or in its analytic form always and always prefer German philosophy. In other words, Hegel and Kant and, and such. Yeah. And you see it, you see it. Yeah, because it's almost like, like the humanistic part of it, it's almost like even like this whole dynamic of the triad or the trialectics, it's like, it's almost like he's saying like that human that human like the course of human history but also just the capacity of human beings it creates like new possibilities even in terms of logic like it creates like mm. new i mean i feel like you've been saying this the whole time but it's like that's true up until like, like it's almost like he said like, it's like up until now <laughs> yes. like up until now maybe like this kind of like a new kind of diet like a new kind of dialectic involving like these right. three actors yeah. like was not possible but that these but like his but like people like the actions of human beings mm -hmm. make create like make the possibility of even like new can I, can I just say something you know who and I, I don't say it's made completely Jean-Paul Sartre makes a similar argument in his work a critique of dialectical reasoning uh and he makes the argument first of all he denies Engels' idea of a dialectic of nature. But, and if, if I read him right, I don't know that I am, it seems that Sartre is making something close to the point that you're making, that di historical logics, social logics mm -hmm. are not just in place, Mm -hmm. And we use dialectical reasoning to understand society, but human beings are creating right. logics. Right. You know, so, just uh, as you said it. Wait, it's so. Um, it's so like. Let me just go okay. to the bathroom. It's very. Uh, <laughs> it's very similar to like this. Okay, like I don't know if this is like a superficial argument, but it is very similar to like the whole Juche thing. Like the like the North Korean Juche idea, which is like basically asserting that like it it assumes like the whole Marxism Leninism thing, but it also assume it also posits that like in a very basic way, but it's like man is like the deciding factor of like everything, and like I don't know, it's like it's like a very like basic formulation in some ways, but in a deeper way, it's kind of like what Du Bois is saying. I feel like I don't know. It, it's a it's a hypothesis, like man centered philosophy, right? Wait, but how does it contrast the law and chance? Damn. But like, I feel like it's I don't know. I just thought of it because it's 
You know you got actors here. Like it is it feels similar to what Du Bois okay. is doing, which is or like even what Doc was saying, yeah. which is that mm -hmm. it's like not that there aren't social laws and social patterns which need to be understood and worked with and worked uh, and yeah. but it also is suggesting that ultimately like what is the creative force of like almost like new like yeah like new logics like new philosophy is like the human being i guess yeah. which is i mean it, it basically we're also trying to make sense of like like how was the north able to like withstand like basically 70 years of constant pressure from us imperialism and like part of it is I don't know. Part of it does feel kind of similar to Mao in some ways, but it's like it's almost like it's almost like because the North Koreans were like, "Oh, we can do it." It's like like they brought into existence something just almost like through like human like sheer belief in the ability of the human being. Like they brought into existence something that like was hitherto thought as impossible, basically. But, yeah, I was just trying to make sense of like how Du Bois like could be seen as in conversation with like the whole like North Korean philosophy of Juche. Mm. Mm -hmm. I also feel like just being able to comprehend the laws of, of, of nature and our boundaries <clears throat> um, presents itself a, a potential that really only exists in human beings as far as we can understand. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? like, mm -hmm. Nothing else can really see in that grand scale and understand its own limitations in that way because understanding it allows you to, to work in a different way with it yeah um, that's why it's so important that we're studying the logics of american history like revolutionary process but that's not to say like it's a predetermined thing or like it's actually to increase the capacity of the or the potential for revolutionary time yeah that's now just to give an example yeah. Mm -hmm. no, that's fine. Yeah. This is so. I, I'm sorry I had to go to the bathroom. But you know, um, see, this is the Sartre argument. See, if if you see, there's you can you can end up in a teleological argument, which then takes human action out of human existence, yeah. what's already determined. Mm -hmm. Dialectical logic tells us so. Mm -hmm. You see, that's that's most of what goes for Marxism and radical thought today. And hence, the inability to grasp what Du Bois is doing, which is right in front of our eyes. And it's a Sartre, because Sartre, and if I understand the work properly, he is making the argument that if you go with laws rather than laws and human action, law and chance, to use Du Bois' formulation, humanity and human action is taken out of the equation. Don't forget, he's talking about philosophy and history. He says to produce sociology but that was in the early uh, that was in the late 1890s early 1900s he says that it is possible and here i got to look at that chapter uh empire and science in dusk of dawn okay. 
which really helps us to understand um, how he is thinking philosophically, the, the broad boundaries of his philosophical thinking. But he, he, he already, and I use, this is, don't, this is sociological word, might not be the word. He operationalizes ex, an existentialism and makes it indispensable to a logic. He's seeing a logic, but he's not bound to it dogmatically because he sees the human that is the existential. So when he talks about the Negro crouching consciously, because you know, you have all of these images then and now of black people in a crouch state or in a little happy coon state, you know, all of these stereotypes, but not conscious. All of the stereotypes fortify the concept that black people are not capable of a high level of consciousness mm -hmm. or intellect. Oh, is he saying the whole fucking opposite? By the way, AJ, we just read where he quotes Frederick Douglass in the text here. So I, that's what I, that's. From a philosophical standpoint, it is one of the most, li this is one of the most liberating mm -hmm. things I, you can imagine. And it should be studied in departments of philosophy. Mm. Easily, fucking easily. It fits. I mean, if you're about philosophy, it fits so well. But and then, it, you know, here we go back to the Lenin Du Bois synthesis. It fits the way Lenin. Um, conceives of doing philosophy. That is, philosophy is ideology by other means. That's what the propaganda of history is about. What he is saying, history is ideology by other means. <laughs> Lenin. I don't know that Lenin ever said this. I just gathered this from my interpretation. By the way, in his book, Materialism and Imperial Criticism, which is not this, you know, throwaway, it's a great work. In that, he establishes a method of critiquing and understanding philosophy. That's what Du Bois does at the end of Black Reconstruction. Don't look at his, because see, my, let me just say, his PhD advisor was a guy, uh, William Bushnell Hard, a historian. Du Bois wanted to do philosophy, couldn't do it. There was no thing as such as sociology. So he does his PhD in history. And William Bushnell Hart was his dissertation advisor. And he would say of William Bushnell Hart, saying that, by not saying it openly or rudely, that William Bushnell Hart did history in a way that he, Du Bois, did not want to do it. 
In other words, William Bushnell Hart, if he went into his office, he'd have files up to the, up to the ceiling with facts. So any fact you wanted to know, he said, well, go to that file over there and pull out the, the second draw and you will see a file on X, Y, and Z. He had all the facts in the world, but no knowledge, or very little knowledge. You see what I'm saying? That's why Du Bois says that philosophy and history, probably learned that in Germany too. But then the outcome of the fusion, of the synthesis of the two is something very different. And that, that's what I want to work out. And I, you know, and, but you see what he's doing. And we could see it here. And you know, Du Bois was always a sociologist. So he's always dealing. See, you can, so, no social science, no sociologist can deal with the whole population. You know, four million black people enslaved in the South. Ain't no way in the world, even under the best conditions, that you would know could study each of those people or the whole collective. So you take a sample of them. That's why you hear in survey research and sociology, a representative sample. Now, the representative is a fiction, I think, most of the time. Nobody can do, what is a rep, represent? How do you know it's representative? You know what I'm saying? But that's another question. But what Du Bois deals with? are samples, discrete groups that reflect something larger. So that's the sociological being used to support a historical analysis, and of course, vice versa. But then you, have, you also have to have the philosophical tools to fucking know how to do it, to know how to think, to know what a, a category of knowledge is. You got to know that. And that's why, you know, so much of the, of, you know, the, now it's becoming even laughable. All of this talk about Black Reconstruction, they're not talking, they're talking about something else. It's not this. Nope. You see what I'm saying? It's not. That's a, it ain't, so you, you, you know, what the hell are you talking about? Oh, uh, that's what, <laughs> and, and I, I think I'm like you, it's a hard work to criticize because it is complete. I mean, you have to criticize, to find a way to critique, and it, probably, it should be critiqued, I guess. But if you're going to do it, you got to know what it is mm -hmm. and what is being done. And you have to acknowledge, and I've never seen anybody even come close to say, it is a complete intellectual work. Never acknowledge, because how could a black man produce a complete intellectual work? Even the great Du Bois is still a black man. Right. You see what I'm saying? And that's that's always in the conscious and unconscious mix. You see what I'm saying? A black man wrote this, and it's entitled Black Reconstruction. Mm. Take Foner. A white man wrote it, and it's called Reconstruction. But the assumption is, although it's not what he says he's doing, he says that the blacks are central to it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to Reconstruction. Well, 
but you can't lose sight. You know, every sociology of knowledge is based upon the social conditions out of which knowledge is produced, right? So a black man writes black reconstruction, a white man writes reconstruction. Now, okay, reconstruction is celebrated. Black reconstruction is out of publication until recently. <laughs> I mean, the dynamic, what, what Derek called unusual dynamics. But so, when black reconstruction is being reappropriated or received yeah. in a new situation after quote, black lives matter. Yeah, yeah. So you have black lives matter. Now we can have black reconstruction. At least we can discuss it. But the assumption is that reconstruction gives you the factual history to help you critique Black Reconstruction. At the end of the day, you're privileging the white thinker over the black thinker. Yeah. Although the white thinker, Foner, has to acknowledge, I think, partially, that his work is a limited work, but Du Bois, but he, he doesn't say this, Du Bois's work is a complete work. Mm -hmm. Maybe we have comments of people. No, not really. Virginia Cott says, why poor whites settled in Appalachia? I don't know. What I think she's means. referring to like the free solo movement. Oh. Say that again. In reference to the free solo movement, Virginia? Yes, yes, yes. Well, well the, the poor whites, the poor whites come out of small farmers mainly who were driven off their land by the plantation owners and they were driven into uh, the hills. That's why they're called hillbillies. And rednecks because they had to work in conditions similar to sharecropping. Mm -hmm. So redneck, that means they were always looking and their necks were sunburnt, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Wayne Curtis says, can't listen today, having an art showing, but we'll come back to it. Oh, All yeah. power to the people. Yeah, thank you, man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. Okay. Woo! <laughs> I think maybe we should chill at this point. Yeah, we should okay, chill. sure, we can we chill. chill. Yeah, this is, uh, damn. Page, page 61. 61. You can also. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Page 61. That was, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> it's great when we get to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was interesting because when I was talking to my dad about, it was the first time I think my dad heard the formulation of multiple, like America's multiple revolution. And my dad, my parents have always really been interested in the American Revolution for some reason. I think, maybe, yeah, I think maybe it's because they landed in Boston. Yeah, true. <laughs> but mm -hmm. when I described the second American Revolution, the Civil War Reconstruction, I described it as a movement. I was like, I told him, I was like, you know how people usually see it as North versus South, but mm -hmm. really the war mm -hmm. was won by a movement of Black people mm -hmm. who decided, mm -hmm. who just, um, who 
in the face of an aristocratic class that fell down. It was the formerly enslaved, like the, it was the black slaves who made the move, the mass move to decide that they were done with the status quo and like made the decisive move um, for a new society or something new. And it was interesting because my dad, at that point, I feel like usually when I talk to my parents, I'll try to ahead of time think of how I'll tell them certain things. But this time I was just like, blah, 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 blah. And my dad was like, that was so, I could tell he was like, that was so interesting. Mm -hmm. Because this was me talking about movement, like revolution in America being about movements. Because then I was like, think about the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. where it's the civil rights movement is a movement of people who've decided that like they are done with the status quo and are ready to assert a new society, assert, you know, that they become prepared, conscious, like they're prepared to govern. Like essentially it's like what Diane Nash said, where it's like you become so big that you're no longer able to be segregated. Um, and my dad, and so I was like, so now that's what I'm stressed about now is like, how would you decide, like, how do you theorize this for the next American revolution as like a movement? And my dad was like, I can hear when he's listening to me intently because he makes these certain sounds like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he was like, wow. Like he, I could tell he was like, whoa, I've never thought about it as a movement of people. And this whole, this is the decisive chapter of Black Reconstruction and General Strike. Yes. Because the other interesting thing yes. is like, people really the dismiss, they dismiss yeah, King and they dismiss the Montgomery bus boycott oftentimes mm-hmm. because they don't see it as a general strike. Because it's not one single union or one single industry of workers going on strike. But what does it mean that, like, to say basically the class struggle, the class conflict is political. So here in Montgomery, you have working class people, workers, like black people who are deciding, like, I'm refusing to cooperate with this system. And so that's, so that's, I don't know, that's kind of interesting. That's that's a very interesting point. when you're when you're talking to your dad, are you, are you all speaking in Chinese? No English. Yeah, I mean, I was just interested because I think, uh, I don't know, for me, because you know, speaking in Chinese would anchor somehow the discussion as well in the Chinese Revolution. Yeah. You know, I I don't know that it would. I'm just culturally, it would be very interesting to me. Mm. Uh, but. Um, you know, you can tell your dad this is as breathtaking for us as it is for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, yeah. I, this. Yeah. Well, my dad seemed a little hesitant when I was talking about revolution because he was like, "Are you saying that we need to take state power in the U.S.?" But I was trying to tell him. Well, this is the interesting mm-hmm. thing because people diagnose people assess the civil rights movement as a failure because we didn't take state power and if anything king like people think that king convinced black people to go into the democratic party but i think that's an inaccurate assessment that's totally wrong yeah and it's and it's also a negation yes and it's also a negation of like basically the power of the people like Um, Mm -hmm. and the agency of Mm -hmm. all the people who Mm -hmm. are being transformed Mm -hmm. in the process and we're Mm -hmm. becoming prepared to govern Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a new society and determine a new society. Like kind of what Jeremiah was saying about bending, forcing a bend. Yeah, Mm -hmm. bending. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting because like when you were talking earlier, Doc, like in the, in America, like we have already, 
this thing about how you're distinguishing that we don't have an aristocracy in the US anymore. If anything, okay, sure, you could say the closest was the Southern planter class that was still trying to emulate mm -hmm. Britain, which mm -hmm. Du Bois goes mm -hmm. into in mm -hmm. the second chapter, mm -hmm. the white, no, the third chapter, the white mm -hmm. planter. Mm -hmm. But if anything, I feel like you could say it's like 1776, like we already, like mm -hmm. we've freed mm -hmm. ourselves from, in, mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. an aristocracy. Oh, so right. it's like what's happening in the, in the cumulative revolutions, American revolutions, the second and the third, it's not about getting rid of an aristocracy we're already like that's been achieved there's it's your idea of revolution has to become different like because in china it's like china the whole civil war the revolution is to seize power like it's basically about seizing power after um like in the aristocracy or whatever you want to call it the mm -hmm. dynasty the Qing dynasty. The Qing dynasty and that, that's why you had a civil war yes. between kmt yes. and the uh communists over power right over the state yeah. and it was that's why it made it so also, easy for the japanese to invade right. but there that, was no state that's also why the cultural revolution yes. is so wrong uh-huh mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's a mistake you don't you're not looking to there is no aristocracy left to defeat it's not like you're trying to smash another state mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. so i don't know mm -hmm. I guess that's, that's a great go ahead no, tease it on out emily point. this is very significant actually yeah mm -hmm. Well, maybe like yes, then you're just you're just trapping yourself in like a dishwasher of revolution going towards nowhere, rather than actually being able to. Because actually, if anything, China would need something similar to the these stages of revolution to achieve a certain substance of democracy, like a new yeah. democracy, a state of the whole people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it makes sense why you in the descriptions of Mao maybe. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, how it became more, um, more about himself rather than well, it did in his concept of world revolution. Right. He felt instead of the same people, yeah, people and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 no. He, yeah, mm -hmm. he felt that the cultural revolution could be the first stage towards a world revolution. Right. And mm -hmm. like, yeah, Just and that that could be the catalyst for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's an interesting article that I read recently from Compact magazine by this guy who's based in Sweden. His name is Malcolm Kayun, but he talks about how America's present day reputation as a quote unquote conservative country by default is actually, it goes counter to basically the entirety of American history when Europe looked to America as like the revolutionary mm -hmm. country in all respects. And it was only with the Cold War that you saw an attempt to completely transform that into what America is like now known as, which is like a conservative country compared to Europe, right? And that the civil rights movement was the attempt to basically reclaim America and reassert America as a country which is mm. like a revolutionary country That's again. Right. Um, That's right. That's right. That's good. I'm sorry. Keep no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. See, we always, and I was a part of this, associated post-World War II Europe, the Europe of large communist parties, Europe of a welfare state, of socialist in government and all mm -hmm. that type of thing, as representative uh, or manifestation of a revolutionary progressive Europe 
and the fact mm -hmm. that there was neither a huge communist party, but a communist party that was under attack. There was no socialist movement like Europe. And there was only a relatively small welfare state as compared to Europe. So Europe, but it was not the case. I agree with him mm -hmm. that in fact, I've heard argued that the European working class as a result of depression and war and compromises with the ruling class uh, has been exhausted. Mm. And the great revolutionary potential among advanced cap developed capitalist countries and maybe among countries and a lot of countries in general in the world, the great revolutionary potential is here. Mm. And I agree with that, that and this is why King must be seen as a revolutionary. Yeah. He triggers, he stokes, he represents mm -hmm. a new revolutionary energy rooted in the previous revolutions yeah. of America. And you, how could you see it? And I mean, when you get right down to mm -hmm. it, I sound like the Delphonics. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> when you get right down to it, there is still a lot of revolutionary potential among the American people. Mm, definitely. Would you, would you say? Mm -hmm. Well, because I feel like it gets back to this thing that Du Bois was also saying. And also, you were bringing up how Baldwin says about watching and waiting. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember the first time I read Black Reconstruction, that also really stuck out to me how, like, what makes a people, and then what also what do people give who are capable of, like, watching and waiting, basically... Well, like we talked about basically being able to push, not concede to just the North or the South, but to drive drive like the third part of a new triad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no, it's, I think there's a lot of potential. You know, and this, you know, just because people are waiting doesn't mean they're not watching and they're not conscious. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Every, yes. I know I get that wrong all the time. You know, that waiting is a lack of courage or lack of mm -hmm. forthrightness or lack of consciousness. Yes, and to boys, that's why that sentence is so, I'm gonna read it a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, also how he said, um, they weren't just going to join anything. Like they weren't yes. just going to join any army. It had to be an army of freedom. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's like, through even like the first like three pages of the chapter Du Bois keeps saying the Union Army did not want to be an mm -hmm. army of emancipation but that it was the black worker mm -hmm. that bent it towards your, your being an, an yes. army of emancipation yes. and I think that that also like the Diane Nash quote had also been in my mind too because mm -hmm. in a lot of ways it is similar to how the civil yes. rights movement conceived of itself it's like we're going to yes. force the nation to revolve around yes. us rather than just being mm -hmm. the so objects of yes. like American yes. society. Yes. And I think that it's almost, you can also like use that analogy to even think about Du Bois, like Du Bois's way of thinking. Like, it's almost like, mm -hmm. I feel like the way that we're trying to put it forward, mm -hmm. like everything yeah. will bend, mm -hmm. everything bends towards that. Like yeah, yeah. It's like double consciousness or even the veil. Like Du Bois is talking from the veil, like the, he's, yeah, yeah. he's yeah. he's writing with con like the, yeah he's basically writing with the double consciousness. The same thing mm -hmm. with Baldwin. You still have yeah. to deal 
You still have to deal with the black. Well, he would call it double vision. At oh, that okay, point. sorry. But that's okay. No, double. Con I think he even in souls as a, if you don't mind, there's a difference between double consciousness okay. and and double vision. Mm. You know, yeah. uh, first of all, the assertion of consciousness on the for for the black people, former slave, is a revolutionary idea when he writes it, even to a certain extent now. But double vision seems to me, and he doesn't return to these things at all in his work in that form, although it seems to have been infused into all of this. But double vision is seeing and knowing. Um, yeah. Double consciousness often is seeing oneself through the lens of your other, mm -hmm. that is the white world. Black people seeing themselves through white, through the way white people see them, or behaving in ways that white people would want them to behave. We see that all the time among black people. It becomes very frustrating sometimes, mm -hmm. especially in popular culture and sports and so on. You know, boxing. Yeah, but anyway, we'll get to that another time. But <laughs> double vision is double knowing, knowing both oh, sides. That's what that's the way I would say it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, as you said, the veil, which is a metaphor for a separation, but also for the fact that the white world does not see you. Right. You know, but you see the seeing and knowing is the vision, I think, part of mm -hmm. it. You know, um, yeah, that's mm -hmm. And all of it is really, I mean, if anybody wanted to be an existential philosopher, Du Bois could be, you know, the foundation of your existentialism, more than Heidegger or Sartre, who I consider the two greatest existentialists, mm -hmm. European existentialists. The greatest, I don't think, and Heidegger is much more difficult for me to read and so on, but I don't think they got what Du Bois got because there is not the historical concrete in their, in their thinking. Well, it's two o'clock. <laughs> I guess we have to shut it down. <laughs> I think we're gonna to have to we're gonna to have to do a Sun Ra thing, you know. Sun Ra, <laughs> all his whole orchestra lived in one house, Wait, like a monastery. Uh, yes. Just I looked up the definition of existential, mm -hmm. and it says it's concerned with existence, especially human existence, as viewed in phase of existence. As as, as the, what? The definition is weird. Confer concerned with existence. Hmm especially human existence yes and and there and one of the fundamental uh tropes of existential philosophy is situation mm. the human situation and you'll hear it today you know appropriated in all kinds of ways uh situational logics situation you know as a way of talking yeah. uh completely yeah. relativistically yeah. by the way du bois philosophically 
is not a relativist. So he doesn't think in, this is my truth and you can have your truth. He believes that there is such a thing as the truth. Okay. Let us eat. Let us eat. <laughs>